On episode 27 of the podcast, Joe Biden gets inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States, Trump gets impeached, again, and Biden governs by executive order. But is that really as sinister as it sounds? This is Down the Middle, a political podcast. Hey, Rob, you, you hear that? It's the sound of former president Donald Trump at home in Florida not tweeting at me or talking to me. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, we'll, we'll get into that later in the pod. How do you feel, though? How do you, I mean, how do you feel? We, I feel like we have a new life. We're, we're reborn. I feel lighter. I can tell you that much. I definitely feel lighter. <laughs> I actually feel heavier because for the first time in four years, I'm actually eating. I'm eating. binge eating. Yeah. <laughs> I have an appetite again. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. So, uh, hope you guys are good. Um, let's not waste any time. Again, as usual, we have a lot to get to. I don't want to scare you all, but uh, I sort of kind of do at the same time. So, uh, let's go right into uh, one of our favorite segments ever. Actually, it's really not. It's just, just a segment we start every show off with. It's called Honest Abe's Housekeeping Hangouts. Go. When he growed up this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham, Abraham. Okay, so for uh, those who tuned in to the newest offering from the intermediary, the Big Stuff podcast last week, thank you, thank you. We hope you enjoyed it. I think it was uh, an excellent and important conversation. It was sort of an experiment that we 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 did. We didn't prep anything. We just sort of got in a panel and and basically saw how, how it went and it, and it yes, went it was fun it was a good time had by all i think yeah i think it was an excellent important conversation so yeah. if you haven't checked it out yet go to uh wherever you get your podcast and type in the big stuff and take a listen uh you can also find a direct link for it on all of our socials of course yeah. or the big stuff podcast.com yes the well. big stuff podcast.com thank you jay for reminding me about that mm-hmm. we're going to be bringing the big stuff back uh whenever there is something really big to talk about so stay tuned for that. We will always warn you. Next, uh, Justin, remind our audience about our ad program again quickly. Yeah, we've gotten a couple little submissions, but we're hoping hoping for some more. So uh, keep them coming, guys. Uh, we have an ad program, and that is you can promote your business, your cousin's business, your brother's business, your best friend's business on the podcast for free through the end of the pandemic. we got a nice listener base and hopefully they can hear about whatever product you want them to hear about. So hit us up on down the middle podcast USA at gmail.com or on any of our socials and let us know about uh, what you want to advertise. Yeah. If you've you know, invented a new play- pair of rollerblades or something. Uh, hey, I'll, I'll advertise. I'll buy those. You you know, we'll, it's, we'll do both. We'll buy them and advertise for them. So yeah, something to look forward to there. So there uh, <laughs> finally, um, we haven't reminded you guys about this in a while, but we do have products for sale, don't we, Jay? We certainly do. We got all kinds of products, mugs, really cool shirts, sweatshirts, all kinds of format of shirts. Um, and we didn't remind you because it was Christmas. We want to give you a little break, but Christmas is over, people. Buy some stuff, check it out, and promote moderate change done incrementally. Yeah, there's never been a better time to promote that. Uh, teach it to your kids, teach it to your mother. Yep. Um, yeah, so uh, no more time for business endeavors. Uh, let's go right into the only segment in the history of podcasts that dedicates itself to answering all of our listener questions every single week. This is We Care A Lot. We Care A Lot!
Okay, so uh, first question had something to do with uh, with Bernie Sanders, didn't it, Justin? It sure did, which is always fun, Rob, because we get your Bernie Sanders impression. I so, was just going to say, I may have to yeah. break out the Bernie question. So read the question first, first, please, and then I'll, okay. uh, I'll respond in a Bernie fashion. You got it. This is from a friend of the pod who shall go nameless, uh, and they... They commented, would love to hear you guys discuss your thoughts on Bernie Sanders being the Senate Budget Committee chairman. Very nice. Well, uh, I'm Bernie Sanders, and uh, I should be the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, uh, not just because I have been living off the government dole since I was a teenager, but uh, also because I I know a lot about budgeting, which is uh, something we're all going to have to learn about uh, when I finally figure out a way to take all the money from the poor, from the rich people, rather, and give it to the poor who deserve it more. Uh, I will have to... Yes, I will have to uh, budget the amount of pieces of rye bread that I consume each week with my egg salad. Sometimes I may just have an open face sandwich uh, with a can of Campbell's tomato soup and, of course, my favorite dessert, uh, chocolate pudding. Thank you. I am Bernie Sanders. Call me if you have any questions. Very nice. Yeah. Th- thanks, Bernie. We don't trust you at all, but yeah, thanks so, for your commentary. Okay. Let's get serious now. So to answer um, the answer to this is that it's a little too early to tell. You know, remember that politics is a people's game and uh, Biden isn't just up against a right wing infrastructure that seems to be uh, determined, I guess you could say, to see him fail. But he has a significant left wing contingent to deal with uh, who may not may have been more willing to vote for him than they were for Hillary Clinton in 2016, but are still very skeptical over whether he'll deliver on on any progressive agenda items and uh you know they've wanted that for years so They're still licking their wounds from obama they are absolutely and i've been seeing a lot of grumblings from my bernie friends my bernie bro friends on facebook and and otherwise about how yep yeah, well, we knew this was going to happen every yeah. time he does something that's not super progressive so <laughs> uh, i i think making bernie the budget committee chairman is throwing a little bone to that segment of the base, which is important uh, to a certain extent, or else we're going to end up with an extremely fractured Democratic voting base in 2024. Uh, Having Bernie there, even as sort of a figurehead to represent progressive economic ideals, is unfortunately a necessary evil of politics. Chief Grouch. Yeah, it's a yeah, some now. Despite the fact that that Democrats have very narrow control over the mm-hmm. Senate, Bernie is expected to exert influence over taxes and healthcare and climate change and things like that. But I'll reserve judgment on his priorities until we actually have something to judge him on. That's the key. Everyone is very knee jerky in politics. Oh my God, what's he going to do? He's going to do the X, Y, and Z. Let's actually see what he does. So you know, one of the things I'm really trying to do with this new administration administration is give people the benefit of the doubt. Let the results speak for themselves. It's been a week and a half. Um, If they do things that I don't like or that I think are bad for the country, I'm going to say that whether or not they may align with my political agenda on paper or they're part of my team, you know, my, uh, you know, or they're part of the Democratic squad whatever yeah yeah don't don't use the word squad right but (laughs) because that's that's how we remain honest here justin because you know one of the big problems that happened with the republican base during trump's term was the inability of so many people to call him out on anything yeah we will never do that here on this show down the middle if bernie or biden or anyone else in this administration is doing something that either of us disagree with we will call them out and give an explanation for why we disagree Yeah, I will be doing a lot of that in this episode. 
There you go. Um, <laughs> with that said, we should talk a hot minute about the budget mechanism called reconciliation, uh, right. which is what a lot of people are saying is what Bernie is going to be relying upon in order to move legislation because it does not require gaining 60 votes in the Senate. Now, according to the New York Times, the reconciliation process begins with lawmakers adopting a budget resolution originating in the House and Senate budget committees, which can include uh, directions to the congressional committees on how much to increase federal spending or taxes. The nature of the process effectively would give Bernie Sanders a leading role in deciding how expansive and how expensive Biden's ambitions for new taxes and spending will be. Uh, So, Justin, uh, why don't you go over a little of what reconciliation is and how it can be used to move legislation without the normal 60 votes in the Senate? Why don't I? So reconciliation is a legislative process of the United States Congress, as you've outlined, that expedites the passage of certain budgetary legislation in the Senate. This essentially, well, it can be used in the House as well, but it's really effective in the Senate. This essentially attaches to a bill and prevents the use of the filibuster, which, as you said, requires a 60 vote supermajority for Senate passage by allowing the passage of a bill with a simple majority vote. These bills can be passed on spending, revenue, and the federal debt limit, and the Senate can pass one bill per year affecting each of these subjects. Congress, on the whole, can pass a maximum of three reconciliation bills per year, though it typically has passed a single reconciliation bill affecting both spending and revenue. The limits on reconciliation bills are enforced by the Byrd Rule, that's B-Y-R-D, which prohibit these bills from increasing the federal deficit after a 10-year period or making changes to Social Security. So, for example, a president submits a budget. In response, each chamber of Congress begins a budget process in committees. These are all rolled up into an omnibus bill, which we spoke a bit about, I believe, in our last episode. Once debate begins on a reconciliation bill, it is limited to 20 hours, and as I mentioned, a simple majority vote, thus bypassing the filibuster, which would need its 60-vote supermajority to be defeated. Senators trying to prevent passage could offer up what is called Votorama, which no, is not the next Lollapalooza. It's an unending series of amendments, but they would have to be present, standing, and verbally offer these amendments. Now, just because this reconciliation process happens doesn't mean that the bill process changes. The Congress must pass an identical bill and present it to the president for signature or veto. Since we have the crankiest Jew in the history of cranky Jews in charge of the Senate Budget Committee, we can expect some interesting debates and most likely bills presented on, as you've said, Rob, taxes, universal health care, climate change, COVID relief. And since the history of reconciliation includes President George W. Bush's tax cuts and President Obama's health care bill, things may heat up for moderate Senate Democrats sitting close to the middle of the aisle and President Biden as well. Sanders has been quoted as saying he wants an initial COVID emergency stimulus package to be big, which is scary in Bernie Sanders terms. This bill would include an additional 1400 in direct payments for adults and children and the creation of an emergency universal health care program so that anyone can get medical treatment during the pandemic, no matter their insurance status. He hasn't said he would go as far as Medicare for all, but Mr. Sanders is looking to test the legal boundaries of reconciliation and address what he says are structural problems in American society. If that's anything more than not being able to get a good bagel outside of Manhattan, we're in for some trouble. Standing in the way of good old Bernie and his mittens is none other than Mitch McConnell, who has said, quote, if this majority went scorched earth, this body would grind to a halt like we've never seen. Taking that plunge would, be, would not be some progressive dream. It would be a nightmare. I guarantee it said Darth McConnell. And that is a little bit about reconciliation. Not very reconciliatory, is it? 
<laughs> so that that clears up a lot of questions on that. I would say that um, in terms of of the budget and uh, especially of a stimulus package in this season of of a pandemic that we've been going through for a year, and the fact that as I've said before on the show, the government basically drove a steamroller through our living room. They should have to pay for it. I am not scared at all in this situation of too much government assistance. Bring it on. Give me my money because you cost me a lot of money this year. And, yeah. uh, you know, I saw I saw people posting the whole like, um, you know, po- uh, posting memes related to like the scariest thing is that is the government saying they're going to help you in this in this situation. I want the government to help me because they did this to me. You know, normally I'm very against, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the handouts and government assistance unless it's completely necessary. And this is a time where I'm like, throw me as much money as you can and figure out how you're going to pay for it later because you screwed this whole thing up. That's how I think. Yeah, I mean, I I, I hear that. I think that there's, you know, things like uh, economics to take into consideration, like inflation, but yeah. I totally get what you're saying. And as long as there are controls on whatever's put in place to be, you know, reined in like a universal healthcare emergency system, right. then, you know, let's 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 experiment a little. Okay, I'll buy that for a dollar or 10, as it were. So uh, the other question we got this week pertained uh, to the executive orders that Biden issued in his first week on the job. Now, we are going to break all of that down and talk a little more about executive orders. Don't you worry. Yes, in a new dedicated segment later in this episode. So you will have to keep listening if you want to hear about that. Now, we're getting better at this. We're we're telling you what's coming so that you, yes, so that you can't stop listening 20 minutes into this podcast and and then tell us you listened to the whole thing. You're going to have to listen to the whole thing. Exactly. We know who you are. We know where you live. Yeah. It's going to be a long one, too, as usual. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, before we get there, however, uh, we have some big things that happened over the last couple weeks. And as always, we will not only break down the highlights of those things, but we'll also tie in some of the cultural elements and how they relate to the news of the day. But with that said, uh, the things we're going to talk about in this segment are more of the historic nature and less newsy, if you will. So we created a new segment for moments like this in lieu of our usual turn on the news segment. This new segment is called Whole Lot of History. So um, I don't know if you've heard this yet, Justin, but guess what? What? Joe Biden was officially inaugurated last week and became the 46th president of the United States. Hey. What? <laughs> Now, what that has to do with the Notre Dame fight song, I have no clue. I just like it. I just like it's, it. It's, right? it's a happy and cheery song, and it's a happy and cheery mood. I get it. I guess so. I guess so. So uh, Biden delivered what I thought was a very moving uh, inaugural address. I want to go through some of the highlights, and uh, we can share our personal insights on why they were highlights. And then I want to talk briefly about something I'm a little more tentative about. So first, I, I was very happy that he made a point to remind everyone that this inauguration and transfer of power was taking place 
at the very site where the former president inspired an armed insurrection, specifically designed to subvert the democratic process. Uh, No matter how much time passes and how much we tend to forget about these things as we move forward, I think it is important that we never forget what transpired on January 6th and how it was indeed the logical conclusion of a presidency that was defined by its uh, reckless divisiveness. Now, we cannot let ourselves forget because if we do, we have a good chance of making the same mistakes 10 20, 50, or 100 years from now, right? Sure. So here's Biden reminding everyone that this should not be lost on us. Biden, go. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. So now, on this hallowed ground where just a few days ago, violence sought to shake the Capitol's very foundation, we come together as one nation, under God, indivisible, to carry out the peaceful transfer of power as we have for more than two centuries. Great. Now, speaking of reminders, uh, I thought it was really good that he highlighted the fact that the current period that we're living in right now and have been for the better part of a year now is uh, one of the harder periods in American history. Now that might sound like hyperbole to those who kept their job and didn't lose any loved ones in this pandemic. Um, You might be thinking, well, what about all the periods where we were at war? But when you think about the fact that 400,000 American lives have been lost, affecting millions of Americans, you know, combined with the fact that millions of jobs have been lost and millions of kids have been deprived of an entire year of education, um, you know, in-person education, which is what they need. Uh, I think Biden was sort of giving the country permission here to uh, sort of let the overwhelming nature of this experience overcome us for a minute and allow us to feel vulnerable about it. And uh, this is what that sounded like. Few people in our nation's history have been more challenged or found a time more challenging or difficult than the time we're in now. Once in a century virus that silently stalks the country. It's taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. So there, you know, I think even just acknowledging that very few Americans in history have gone through what we're going through now. It's mm-hmm. it's something big. If you're living today, um, you should recognize that. Now, ultimately, Justin, I think... There are a lot of reasons Biden won, but this is the biggest reason. In a time where things are so hard for so many Americans, we really needed somebody uh, who had a sense of empathy and somebody who didn't downplay our fears and our pain and somebody who recognized that, even though, you know, they recognize that even though we're we're a tough country comprised of a lot of tough people, Mm -hmm. this has been a rough one. I mean, it's been a really rough year, right? And a lot of stuff has happened. It was yeah. time for mommy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a perfect way of putting it. And, and I've said before on this pod that I don't I don't want much from my government. I don't want mm-hmm. handouts. I don't want comfort on a day to day basis because that's what my family is for. That's what your church is for. Right. Sure. But mm-hmm. to me, it did feel nice to hear the president acknowledge the pain 
that this pandemic has caused, instead of just placing blame elsewhere or downplaying its severity, which yeah. is what we got for the last year from mm-hmm. from the last guy. Yeah. Um, and I think Biden is good at that. The whole consoler in chief thing. That's his his shtick. He's just he's just a breath of fresh air in that way. Um, yeah. So back in 2008. When the economy crashed and a uh, and a ton of people lost their jobs and their four hundred one ks and whatnot, uh, the next few years, if you remember, were really hard. I I actually remember sitting with you and us. You know, people were trading in their cars for Priuses and stuff. And like yeah. it was yeah. it was a tough time. Like you could really feel, even in L A. where there's a lot of money, uh, you could feel like a palpable sense that times were really hard. Like mm-hmm. it, it almost became a, a celebrity sort of thing to stop spending as much money to budget more. It was like for cool sure. for a minute, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, tons of people lost their homes and and you just got a sense over that period that people were in pain, right? So yeah. I, I remember that in the thick of it, I went to see Bon Jovi at the Staples Center, right? Yeah, and uh, the, yeah, the uh, it was the last time I saw Bon Jovi actually. And uh, they, uh, with the full band, with Richie Sambora and everything, right? Oh, um, and the encore performance, of course, was Living on a Prayer, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bon Jovi came out, and this is one of my like most vivid memories of any concert I've ever been to. He came, And I'm not a huge Bon Jovi fan. Justin's probably a bigger Bon Jovi by virtue of the fact he's from New Jersey. I'm a huge Bon Jovi fan. Yeah, I know you are. Bon I know you've always been. Um, yeah. So Bon Jovi came out, and he gave a five-minute speech about hard times in life. Mm. And it really gave you this feeling like he was talking directly to you. And he yeah. said, he said something I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of, you know, I know a lot of you are in pain right now. And you might be looking at me and saying, what could this guy possibly know about my pain? Uh, and, and then he sort of in this really like earnest moment, he like looked right at the audience. He was like, I just want to tell you that I feel it. Like, I get it. I know what it's like. I really can feel it. And you can hear a pin drop in the audience because even though everyone knows John Bon Jovi himself wasn't struggling, he had Mm -hmm. this really, in that moment, this unique ability to make you really believe that he got it. Right. Sure. And, and then they kicked into living on a prayer and everyone went nuts. And because that song is about struggle. Right. Of so course, yeah. so it was a, it was a perfect sort of segue into that. That's and great. Th- the point is that the, the, the ability to show empathy is mm-hmm. a gift that yes. some people just have. Um, and and for whatever you want to say about Joe Biden or his policies, he has that gift. And yeah. it's especially apparent after four years of Trump. That's all mm-hmm. I want to say about that. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, he talked a lot about unity. And again, he reminded us that the divisiveness we're going through now is nothing new. Uh, It's part of our history. But somehow we always prevail. And uh, this is what that sounded like. I know speaking of unity can sound to some like a foolish fantasy these days. I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real. But I also know They are not new. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we're all are created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization have long torn us apart. The battle is perennial and victory is never assured. Through civil war, the Great Depression, World War, 9-11, through struggle, sacrifice, and setbacks, our better angels have always prevailed. 
So again, I think a lot of, of, of his address was centered around reminding people about American history mm-hmm. and giving us a sense of confidence that, like we always do, we will get through this. As well written. That piece yeah, is well written. Very, very well written. Now, all in all, I think uh, the entire address was a repudiation of Trumpism. And people have all sorts of definitions of what Trumpism is. But very simply, I think the definition, you could yeah, I'll send this to Webster if they ever okay. ask me to. <laughs> I think the definition of Trumpism is using the divisions that exist within the American conscience as a political weapon. It's about validating the reasons we feel divided ideologically or otherwise by emboldening only one side to think they are right and the people who don't agree with them are the enemy. That's what Trumpism is. And whether or not you believe Biden will succeed or whether or not you believe he's full of shit and just another career politician, his address was like the, the polar opposite of Trumpism. And I think that was very much purposeful, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, with all that said, There were a few controversial things that Biden talked about, and I think Mm -hmm. they're only controversial if one is twisting the meaning meaning of his words to fit a particular narrative that they want to assign to the left wing of America. So before I get into it, uh, this is what Biden said in regard to racial justice, obviously a hot button topic over the last year. A cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. Okay. Now, anyone who's listened to our show for a while uh, knows that we we used to quote Ben Shapiro, the famous intellectual right-wing commentator, a lot on our show. Uh, mm-hmm. We haven't done that for a while because, quite frankly, and I know I speak for Justin here as well, his analysis since the election has been utterly uninteresting. Yeah. I think I think what made a lot of these guys interesting was when they were able to sort of stand on their conservative principles while Trump was deconstructing them. But now that Trump is out of office, guys like Shapiro have sort of reverted to the same kind of uh, exaggeratory Fox News style, the sky is falling and our rights are being eroded rhetoric that yeah, they do when, whenever. It's, like, it's totally it, predictable. And, and it's and it's unnuanced is, is my problem with it. It's not, it doesn't present, like he's really great, has always been great at being modern, presenting both sides mm-hmm. of the argument. Just stop doing that after after the election. Yeah, he just turned into everyone else. You know, like you said, yeah. it's nothing original. It's nothing unique. You know, um, let's just say that. But you know, with that said, I thought it would be useful to hear how he interpreted what Biden said about racial justice in that mm-hmm. clip we just played. So here is uh, Ben Shapiro. Then he has a few other crises he talks about. He says the cry for racial justice, some four hundred years in the making, moves us. Okay, what does he mean by that? Hey. Official discrimination in law was made illegal in the 1960s. Okay, private discrimination was made illegal in the 1960s. Okay, it's been two generations since the Civil Rights Act of 1965. So what is he talking about exactly? The cry for racial justice. What is the racial justice he's calling for? The answer, of course, is that he is calling for a new government-run regime that sees any inequality as inequity and sees any inequality as systemic in nature, that if Black people earn less than white people. That is definitely attributable to a system. And that means that the system of the United States must be changed and rights must be violated. Individual rights must be violated. Your economic rights, your freedom of association rights, your contractual rights, all of those have to be violated by the federal government. Now, outside of stealing my line there that inequality doesn't always equal inequity, 
uh, Shapiro has to twist himself in a ton of knots, I believe, to derive that conclusion from what Biden said. Uh, Biden said uh, the cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us. Now, I think you'd have to be an idiot at this point to argue that governmental policy in the past hasn't led to systemic disparities that exist between uh, largely white communities and communities of color, right? That exists in policing, that exists in education, that exists in opportunities and entrepreneurship, etc. We've talked about all this on the show, right? And it is my belief that Biden was simply pointing these disparities out and saying quite reasonably that despite the civil rights movement of the 60s, we still have work to do. I mean, what's wrong with saying that? You know, what Shapiro is assuming is that Biden, and this is totally an assumption on his part, is is that Biden and the Democrats in general want to use government as a tool of correcting these disparities via economic policy, which they call socialism. Now, if that is the case, the Democrats are going to succumb to the far left. And, mm-hmm. you know, attempt, you know, if they're if they're going to do that and they're going to attempt to correct inequalities by making everyone more economically equal. equal yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Then I'll be the first one to throw up my hands and say, yeah. stop. You know, as I've said before on the show, it is my opinion that capitalism for all is the key to the American dream, not Absolutely. socialism, mm-hmm. and certainly not demonization of the wealthy. But it's a, it's sort of a moot point anyway, because we don't know what Biden is going to do economically. God, give the guy a break. He's been in office for a, a little over a week. <laughs> yeah, you you know, we don't know a break. <laughs> we, we don't know what he's going to do to address inequities that do exist in communities of color. So Shapiro being negative about that is very premature. Let's see. I mean, Jay, do you have anything else? Yeah, uh, look, look, I, yeah, I think that this is, uh, look, this was obviously, you know, a, a bone thrown to the, sort of the virtual signaling crowd where this was something that was brought to the, the center of the, of the universe uh, yeah. last year. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think his speech would have been fine without this piece. Mm-hmm. I think Shapiro is absolutely stretching to the conclusion yeah, that he right. drew. Uh, right. You would have to. But with that being said, I don't think that this is something he needed to include. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I somewhat disagree just because racial strife was such a big part of the last year in particular. And he couldn't go up there and not say anything about it. Now, you know, with that said, I have noted many times how destructive I believe identity politics to be. Sure. Um, and last Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Mm -hmm. And I took some time to read some of his speeches and lectures, and it wasn't lost on me that some of the thought leaders associated with the Democratic Party have completely lost touch with the message of MLK and have actually gone in the complete opposite direction, whereby one is not judged by the content of their character, but instead almost solely on the identity group they belong to. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and whether that means they're black, Hispanic, gay, a woman, yeah, et cetera. You That's know, a great point. And, right. And and at this point in time, here I guess if I had to say one negative thing about Joe Biden, and this is just a prediction again, I don't know this for sure. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, I do not have much hope that Biden is gonna be a bulwark against that kind of of thought. It mm-hmm. does seem as though he is patting that part of his left flank on their heads and appeasing them with what I consider to be a a few meaningless appointments of people based on their identity and not on anything else. And I just hate that stuff. I just don't like it. uh, I'm right there with you. Right. Is that we've talked about this. I mean, for instance, we had, you know, this might not be a perfect example, but 
We have had to endure a lot of media fawning over the fact that Kamala Harris is the first female non-white vice president in history. And Mm -hmm. I can sit here and recognize and not downplay the significance of that. You know, I have a daughter. I'm very proud uh, that she got to see that and see the possibilities in life. Like, that's an Mm -hmm. incredible thing. I can be proud of the fact you know, that for the first time in history, we have a black female Asian vice president. It's incredible, right? But I don't want to talk about it for four years. I want to recognize the significance, feel nice about it, and move on. Let's get on with the business of our country. Right, right. And let me tell you, the because this might surprise people, my reasoning for that is actually because I think it demeans her Mm -hmm. to continually focus on her identity, something she was born with, as her defining characteristic. And this is where the far-left identity politics people get it so wrong, in my opinion. You know, the fact fact that she's a woman and a person Mm -hmm. of color should not be the thing that defines her tenure in office. It should be how she conducts herself and what she does. Like, this is in line with the teachings of MLK. And unfortunately that has been lost on a segment of the far left. It's very bizarre to me. It's it's interesting. You know where you really saw this and I, I really noted it when it was happening was uh, I watched a lot of tennis and when Serena Williams had her daughter, she became known as the mother. Oh right. my gosh. How she, how can she keep up such a schedule? <laughs> right. She's a mother and mm-hmm. oh my gosh, isn't it amazing? She's made it to the finals. She's a mother. Never right. mind the fact that she has had to, work her way through a very wealthy, very white sport. Right. She just became known as a mother and she still just called that. And that is a wonderful thing that happened, but it's just one of many things that she is. Although when she became a mother, she was just defined as the mother. Uh, In in all media, in all the the broadcasts of the matches, it was really something else. And this is just another example of that. Yeah, totally, totally. It's uh, identity politics, I truly believe, is a disease. And it is not, I, I have to believe just from what I've, I've read of MLK and, and everything he talked about, that if, that if he saw right now what, what, you know, what has become of some of his yeah. messaging, he'd mm-hmm. be very upset by that. Because yeah. his whole shtick was about not judging people by their race. So, um, yeah, it's disappointing that that happens. I still do not believe there's a large segment of the left that subscribes to that kind of thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I look at Kamala Harris, I don't even see a black person or a woman, frankly. Yeah. I, I, I see a politician, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, um, well, and, and you hard, know, let's... Right. Let, let, let's let's see what she does. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. Now, uh, while we're on the subject of media fawning, I would uh, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the orgasmic reactions <laughs> of both media and Hollywood in the yeah. wake of Biden's inauguration. And uh, the funny thing to me is that left wingers completely overlooked this for like for some oh, reason yeah. this goes that no one seems to see this except me. Well, I'm like because it's 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 just so exciting. Right. <laughs> it, it always makes me laugh that there is a clear and utter hatred of any Republican politician that is so palpable from the cool people in our society. Just look at the bill, you, man. You, look at you the could, lineup from each and say that, dude. Yeah, you I can mean, cut it with a knife. It's, it's so insane. palpable. Like, can you imagine Lady Gaga, J-Lo, Justin Timberlake, <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, yeah. and John Legend performing at 
any Republican inauguration, like Ted Cruz. Like, <laughs> I mean, Trump got Toby Keith and yeah. the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And 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 here's Yay. the point. Yeah, the the point is that this is nothing new. All right? I was mm-hmm. talking to my mother about this this week because she's one of these people. I think it's it, it, this sort of is lost on her. Like she didn't really even she doesn't think about this, right? Because yeah, it's know, so my, fantastic, right? Well, what well, and also my parents are seventy years old, and it's basically been like this their entire lives. The cool people in our culture couldn't get close enough to JFK. You think you oh, think they course. were like that with yeah. Dwight D. Eisenhower or Gerald <laughs> Ford? And, you know, and, and I don't I don't think it's because JFK was young and good looking. That's like the obvious thing. It's not that's yeah. not what it is. I think that it's because the cool people in society, the intelligentsia crowd, have always been attracted to progressive values, to mm-hmm. the idea of change and progress. Conservatism isn't sexy. It just no. isn't. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, it's really as simple as that. So you know, like guys exa- and ties. <laughs> so a good example of this is that CNN aired this special a couple weeks ago called Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president. Did you see I this? saw this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I actually sat through and watched it, it was a little boring, but uh, I, I watched it. You, watched, it you, yeah. you sat through the whole thing. I sat through the whole thing, right? Because oh it had gosh. some of the artists I like in it. So it was really all about, it was very little about politics. It was all about how the, uh, you know, the cool rock stars at the time got behind Carter and he was sort of the first sort of celebrity uh, president because he was young and cool and progressive and he really struck a nerve with, with, with that crowd, that audience. The special didn't mention the fact that Carter was, by all available metrics, like one of the most insignificant presidents in American yeah. history, right? And so I make this point because, and I'll get, I'll get, I'll probably get some flack from the lefties here, but I, I make this this point because we talk a lot on this show about the culture war, right? And here's the thing: you want to know why conservatives and Republicans always revert back to the culture war because they've been losing it for seventy years. Yeah, And it's gotten more and more extreme now where Republican politicians are essentially blacklisted from all mm-hmm. culturally significant happenings of the day. Like the late night guys, they don't even have Republicans on anymore. They used no. to have like occasional, like when's yeah. the last time uh, Marco Rubio was invited on Colbert? You know, and, like no, it, I mean, it doesn't look, happen you know, at all. We, we can argue bias in academia. We can argue mm-hmm. bias in media. There's no argument about bias no. in Hollywood. I no, mean, I literally, not. I've talked about it on the show. I, I had to, yeah. I myself had to join mm-hmm a a secret society of Mm -hmm. republicans in hollywood because you could get blacklisted by coming out as a conservative absolutely comedy music film hollywood television is so intertwined at this point with left-wing values is it any wonder that people who hold conservative values feel kind of sort of victimized by the culture i mean i get it It, you know and here's the thing this is why i bring this up because i want to to all you left-wingers out there if we're gonna ask for empathy we have to be empathetic enough to understand how that must feel if you live in middle America and hold deeply Christian values, it's mm-hmm. almost like everyone is sneering and laughing at you all the time. And you never get to have lunch at the cool kids table. Like it, it just doesn't happen. You're not invited. Yeah. You know, sure. and anyone yeah, who's actually been in high school knows what that means. There's nothing to do with you. No, right. A- right. And here's the thing. I was thinking about this and yeah. thinking like in the fifties and maybe even in the sixties, mm-hmm. uh, media was less um, global. So like if you were yes, in West Texas, right. mm-hmm. you turn on the radio and you'd hear country music, but yeah, now it was all because, localized. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So now because 
all media is coming from the same place. All entertainment yeah. is coming mm-hmm. from the same place. There is no real alternative when you turn on the TV. So if you think about it, you know, those flyover states, the people in middle America who have different values from those people on the coast, different values from people who, uh, you know, have high paying jobs. Yeah. They turn on the TV and it's just bad crazy to them yeah everything yeah, sure. you know there's so so i uh, the point is we should all understand why these people feel victimized now I, i've said before that with all that being true they they still manage to win a hell of a lot of elections <laughs> and hold on to a significant amount of power Correct. so there's always a tendency on my part to be like what the hell are you whining about it i understand yeah. what you're saying if, if yeah. you if you if you don't participate in politics and you know you just you're just a consumer of media Yep. Of of late night television, of mm-hmm. SNL, of music, of whatever yeah. else. I understand what you're saying. It definitely applies to you, and you're going to be like, "What the heck? Why aren't you talking to me?" Right, I'm Ameri- right. I'm, I'm America. You know, of of course. And, and I think we all have to take note of the fact that the cultural chips are stacked against conservative America. It's been that way for a long time. It's been that way for all of our parents' life. Sure. Biden's inauguration was a shining example of this. And I'm I, I'm not sure it's uh it's great for the country, but it just is what it is. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It, it, look, right. it was very entertaining, and as my mom said, it wasn't it a spectacle. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I look, I think that it's a, it's a fantastic point. It's very fair. And uh, your empathy is appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we got to have more empathy all around if we're going to ask for empathy, Amen. especially from the government. Right? Amen. So lastly, on the inauguration, and I recognize that I am in the extreme minority with my position on this. I think probably even Justin won't agree with me on this. But uh, Justin knows in my private life, I'm a party animal, right, dude? I like to get down. I mean, I used to have always been. I have always been right yeah. now. Uh, the whole. But here's the thing. Despite the fact that I'm a party animal, the whole pomp and circumstance of these big inaugurations, yeah. I can kind of sort of do without the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and and maybe this is my libertarian side talking, but I think I think of the government as sort of my electrician. Like yeah. if there's a problem in the wiring or a fire hazard, I want them to fix it. The utility, but I ha- right? But I have no desire to party with them. Yeah. Like my electrician, when he comes over, I'm like, well, let's go get a beer. Like that doesn't happen, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I've been. I think I've been pretty consistent on this because I feel the same way about the State of the Union address and all mm-hmm. the pomp and circumstance that sure. surrounds that, no matter who is president, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's because I've read the Federalist Papers, but I just don't like – I don't think the founders set up our government whereby the chief executive of said government would require this pageant-like ceremony with fireworks and balloons and celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> right? No, I completely yeah. agree. Have, right. a little, have a little party for your staff. They worked hard. Congratulations. Right. You're the president and getting your chair and do your job. Yeah, it's kind of sort of monarchistic, isn't it? I yeah, mean, it isn't is. that what we're trying, right. to, trying to get away from? You know, and, still trying. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll hear people say that it, it should be celebrated because it's a rebirth. You know, that was the word of the week last You've week. You've heard that? You You've know, heard someone uh, say uh, that? Re- rebirth of the media just i mean they fawn all over themselves it was so much they're getting the journalism everywhere journal the journalism just all (laughs) just up the wazoo right it's just yeah but it's a rebirth of america we got to celebrate it because it's a rebirth but again it's not supposed to be that it's supposed to just be a further enactment of the will of the people right yeah yeah completely and And by the way there's never been more of an occasion to be a little bit more solemn about it when everything all of this stuff is going on around the inauguration so i'm with that of course Actually. You know, but I guess you could look at it the other way and say, "Man, it's a great time to feel good about something." You know, so uh, I see oh, both I, ways. I, 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 would, yeah. I would do that without eighteen balls. 
Whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I know, I, you know, I sort of just sound like a curmudgeon here and I'm not going to change anything by, by giving this, this, this analysis, but I'm just noting that the entire inauguration procession is yeah. probably not what the founders had in mind. So uh, just put on a concert in Central Park with the same artists and give the proceeds to PETA next time. I'd be happier. Great call. PETA. There you go. <laughs> Peter, you know people for the ethical treatment of animals. No, I know who they yeah. are. Just a random pick for you. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I, I love animals. I'm an animal lover. All right, all right. Uh, <laughs> finally, uh, I want to say a quick thing about the word unity. Now, uh, Biden said the word unity approximately one thousand five hundred and thirty-eight times during <laughs> his address. Yeah. The right-wing press has been very focused on that word because they want to imply the most sinister meaning to it possible, which is the idea that unity to the Democrats means agree with us on everything and shut the hell up, or we are going to accuse you of Mm -hmm. impeding our desire for unity, right? In other (laughs) words, if you want this mythical unity, you have to sign on to the left-wing agenda. Right, that's the narrative. Right. And Mm -hmm. I don't believe that Biden thinks like this. And I don't believe that the two choices for conservatives is to either double down on Trumpism or become radical leftists. Like, no, there there is a middle ground. Like, as as I'm sitting here. Exactly. As I've said before, I think a strong ideological Republican Party is really important for our country. I know Justin agrees with me. So unity to me in regard to policy and government means people means being open to having honest conversations. Yeah, it's not about agreement. Right, right. Just being true to the ideals that have historically mm-hmm. defined your party, though. That, yeah. that is a big part of it. Now, John yeah. McCain used to use the term regular order, like the idea that we debate and we compromise. You, so mm-hmm. let's go back to regular order where we bring a bill, we debate it, we compromise, right? That's a big thing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I will say to the left-wingers out there, don't define unity as getting the right to agree with everything you want. And to the right-wingers out there, don't be so cynical about unity to think that it means you have to compromise your personal ideals. Okay? Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I think that's great. There was a great piece last week written by former Obama staffer and Pod Save America host Dan Pfeiffer, by far the smartest guy on Pod Save America. He's great. Um, He's uh, really become one of my favorite think tank pieces, uh, piece writers, if you will. Uh, He does a lot of like left-wing think pieces that I think are really good. Uh, He put out a piece this last week Um, You could Google it. The piece was called Unity is Already Being Weaponized Against Biden. And uh, Editor-in-Chief Clay Cogman and I are so in sync that we both highlighted the most important line from the piece, which is the following. Quote, there is nothing the political class likes more than to view idealism as naivete in order to validate their ingrained cynicism. The unity conversation is going to be constantly distorted with unfair expectations, bad faith arguments, and general stupidity. So keep that in mind, folks. When your Uncle Earl starts yelling, I thought you guys wanted unity, right? Yeah, okay, sure. exactly. So that's the thing. The, if, you, if you listen to right-wing press and you're moved by things you hear in right-wing press, uh, you know, just remember that this whole idea of unity is going to be politicized in and of itself. You know, when we talk about unity, we talk about what we do on this podcast is the, the, the free discussion of ideas from either side of the coin and having that with respect. That's what's being addressed here. And it should be, you know, it's something we've been missing and lacking. So one last thing, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what didn't go wrong on Inauguration Day. 
Uh, it's an interesting piece of the conversation to me. Uh, we got what we wanted. You know, we got a riot and protest free inauguration. So what happened? We haven't heard of much chatter since the day of the inauguration. I saw the flyers myself calling for these rallies and protests. We read the stories about rising concerns of an insider attack. Twelve National Guardsmen were removed due to extremist ties. Were there attempts that were thwarted that we'll find out about later? Did everyone get freaked out by the photos of the National Guard sleeping and stay home? <laughs> I actually saw a really funny BuzzFeed article that showed each state capital and what happened there on the day of the, uh, of the inauguration. So in Nevada, Wisconsin, and Michigan, it was like a couple people, like maybe four apiece. They were just hanging out on the steps of the Capitol. Right. Uh, in New York State, it was literally one guy in a Trump flag. In Pennsylvania, <laughs> it was one guy with an impeached China Joe hoodie. In Florida, it was a weirdo in a vest with a MAGA hat on because Florida. And speaking of Florida, in Arizona, there was also one dude in a MAGA hat standing in front of the double-fenced barbed wire protection. In Colorado and Mississippi, there was actually no one, just like in Minnesota, where there was only snow. Uh, Montana and Texas each had one person show, but they were both Biden supporters. So this went on and on, state by state, and of course, there were no reported issues that we know of in Washington, D.C. either. Uh, we don't know enough to make definitive statements here, but it's interesting to consider what happened after all of the uh, noise that we heard pre- oh. previous to the, uh, the inauguration. All the hoopla. Yeah, I, you know, I am always happy when it is... Um when you're it, there's impending doom sure. expected yeah, and it doesn't happen it's yeah, a great, it's a great thing. thing uh i'm sure that there's going to be people who will spin it that it was you know all meant to hurt trump as everything else yeah, right. was right <laughs> um or you know meant to demean conservatives or something mm-hmm. i think our intelligence agencies were not lying to us they had very valid intelligence these mm-hmm. things were happening but maybe yeah, they, myself, they like got on it they got yeah. on it you know uh mm-hmm. why they weren't on it on january 6th who the hell knows it's something yeah. that we are going to get to the bottom of there's going to be investigations oh, sure. yeah um yeah so let's leave our cynicism behind right now and uh and just you know look look for answers to come to all that amen all right Uh, Let's get off of the inauguration and move on to the next order business. Hey, Justin. Yeah, Rob. I I don't know if you've heard this yet. Yeah. But Donald Trump, 45th president of the United States, Uh was officially impeached for the second time on Monday. Now, I don't know what that has to do with the uh, Stars and Stripes Forever theme. <laughs> I just like it. Okie doke. <laughs> okay, yeah, so... That's so, uh, what happens when Rob picks the music around here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we all know that uh, Donald Trump is being impeached for a second time, uh, this time for inciting an armed insurrection against the United States government, as we've gone over. And no, that's no exaggeration. You do not need to adjust your EQ on your car radio. I said something true. Um, so, uh, so new has come to light in, uh, the whole saga relating to the actual lengths to which the president was willing to go to overturn the election results. Thanks the dude. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Uh, according to, uh, the New York times, uh, Trump and a justice department lawyer plotted to oust, uh, the acting attorney general in exchange for a loyalist who would force Georgia state lawmakers to overturn its presidential election. How charming. Um, 
the the unassu- the unassuming lawyer uh, who worked on the plan, Jeffrey Clark, uh, had been devising ways to cast doubt on the election results and to bo- bolster uh, Mr. Trump's continued legal battles and the pressure on Georgia politicians uh, because Mr. Rosen had refused the president's entreaties to carry out those plans. Mr. Trump was about to decide whether to fire Mr. Rosen or replace him with Mr. Clark. The department officials convened on a conference call, then asked each other, what will you do if Mr. Rosen is dismissed? The answer was unanimous. They would resign. So uh, I can't stress enough uh, to all you listeners out there just how criminal this is. It's not just the phone call to Georgia representatives pressuring them to overturn the election, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Uh, It's not just the incitement of a mob to break into the Capitol building. It's a coordinated effort by Trump and his goons to hold on to power by any means necessary, up to and including throwing out millions of legally cast votes made by American citizens, you the people. Uh, And uh, the Trumpers uh, always got so upset when we called him an authoritarian or a fascist, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that sounds pretty authoritarian and fascist to me. What yeah, do you think, Jay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah can't yeah, argue man. with that. It's an yeah, amen, man. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, amen and a woman, as they say. <laughs> oh, get out of here. <laughs> so, uh, so Trump deserves to be impeached. It's obvious. Uh, this stuff is worse than Watergate. I know people throw the term Watergate around a lot. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have Woodward and Bernstein who, uh, who make a living comparing every single thing that's happened since Watergate to yeah, everything's a, like, everything's a gate like this is funny if you watch cnn you gotta you gotta pay attention to this woodward and bernstein have a pup tent they, they sleep together and they come together <laughs> like ernie and bert That's they so come great. together they have a pup tent outside of cnn yeah. and they basically come on the entire day when anything happens to compare it all to to watergate like the, these guys i respect them they're journalists that discuss, that, that broke the watergate story that's great they, they haven't do. done a single thing since <laughs> well, but they've compared compare, everything to watergate <laughs> everything is watergate and you know they they use that so many times it's sort of like the boy who cried wolf because they've been saying everything's watergate the entire trump presidency yeah with that said this stuff that we just talked about that trump was trying to do i mean this really is criminal behavior and he can not be let off the hook for it there is no moving forward no chance of unity no way we can heal the nation if this guy isn't held accountable for his crimes against the country i mean Mm -hmm. so justin tell us a little bit about the the articles being delivered to the senate and what that means i know things are changing constantly What, what have you found out Absolutely. So on Monday evening, a group of House Democrats selected by Speaker Pelosi marched together across the Capitol to deliver one single article of impeachment against now former President Donald Trump. On Tuesday, the senators were sworn in as jurors, signaling the beginning of the proceedings, although we do not expect arguments to begin until the week of February 8th, in a very substantial power move. After the swearing in on Tuesday, Senator Rand Paul forced Republican senators to indicate how they would vote on impeachment by bringing a vote to the floor on the constitutionality of the impeachment trial itself. Now, the motion was defeated 55-45, but showed the country and the world that the second impeachment of Donald Trump would again end without a conviction in the Senate. Republicans crossing party lines and voting with the Democrats were... Say it with me now, everybody. Senators Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Pat Toomey. Patriots, people. Patriots. Yeah. And speaking of the Senate, we have a new mini segment, and it's called 
Let's make a deal with Chuck and Mitch. Dressed up for win cars, cash, and amazing prizes. And they've come to the Tropicana Las Vegas. It's time for Let's Make a Deal. So this is going to be a great mini segment that I'm sure we'll be bringing back around many times. Is this a segment inside a segment? It's a mini segment. It's a segment okay. inside a segment. <laughs> yeah, it's so, so meta. It's so meta. Uh, so the thought of these two guys negotiating anything is really enough to bring a smile to my face and a warmth in my heart. In all seriousness, I'm very happy to see these two working together. It is a sign that some things are returning to a degree of normalcy. What I'm talking about, of course, is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's week-long fight over the Senate rules and the filibuster, which would be the first step in either packing the court or adding states to options rolled out by the Democrats last year during the Senate confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. McConnell was holding up a resolution on the organizing of the Senate, which meant that while Schumer was indeed the majority leader, Democrats were unable to formally take over committee chair positions, and new members have yet to be seated in committees. So while initially asking for written confirmation that the filibuster would not make it onto the agenda, in the end, Mitch was satisfied with two Democrats, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona's assurance that they have no intention of killing the filibuster. I'm sure we'll hear those names over and over and over again as we continue on with the, with the news of the Senate. So really oh, a yeah. win-win for both parties here, and everyone yeah. can get back to doing the business of the country. Great job, old waspy guy, and great job, old Jewish guy. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I have uh, such a bad taste in my mouth from years of 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 Mitch McConnell. Dark that McConnell, I, you know, I yeah, I can't, I cannot um, ever uh, admit that, or, or, or I will never say that he's acting in good faith unless I really see him acting good faith. So it's a little premature again to to celebrate this, but let's make a deal. It's uh, it works for me, I guess. All right. Now, going back to uh, that was good. Uh, going back to to uh, impeachment for a second. A lot of people are saying, "Well, what's the point? I mean, maybe we should just move on. Let's let it go. Focus mm-hmm. on togetherness. Kumbaya, all this crap." Uh, a couple of you have reached out to us and and said that you want to put Trump behind you and you think impeachment at this point is counterproductive. Uh, that's going to be a big fat no on my part. Uh, the guy was involved in things at the end of his presidency that are not just criminal, but that are nothing like any president in American history has ever done. And it resulted in five people dead. Okay. I, you know, I know Trump shouldn't be tried for murder or even accessory to murder, but he should never be able to hold public office again. And the only way to achieve that is to impeach him. So yeah, that's how I feel about that. But uh, we have members of the GOP who are making up all kinds of excuses for why we shouldn't impeach Trump. Here's one of one of my favorites, uh, Marco Rubio, argue, arguably the squishiest and most irritating member of the GOP. Uh, here he is saying that impeachment is stupid. Uh, this is what that sounded like. First of all, I think the trial is stupid. Uh, I think it's counterproductive. We already have a flaming fire in this country, and it's like taking a bunch of gasoline and pouring it on top of the fire. Uh, so, uh, second, um, and I look back at the time, for example, Richard Nixon, who had clearly committed crimes and wrongdoing. And uh, in hindsight, I think we would all agree that President's Ford pardon was important for the country to be able to move forward. And history held Richard Nixon quite accountable for, for what he did as a result. So, you know, you know, you remember when he had his own Watergate with the water yeah. bottle? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Go back to drinking your water, Marco. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, he's got a very dry mouth. Marco. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, well, he lives in Florida. Yeah. But actually, there's a great there's a lot of humidity. A lot of humidity. There, so. I was fine. Yeah. I never had a dry mouth uh, living yeah. in Florida. It was perfectly fine. <laughs> So, okay, Nixon comparison first, the whole like Ford pardon Nixon thing. Okay, the difference is that Nixon resigned. 
he admitted fault. Correct. If Trump had come out after the insurrection and said, okay, uh, enough is enough. I was playing politics. I lost this election. I convinced my base that there was an election fraud when there wasn't. You know, if he had said, for the good of the country and to maintain a peaceful transition of power, I'm going to resign my post as president effective immediately. Like, if that had happened, yeah, I know my Trump, my Trump still needs a little work, but <laughs> if Trump had resigned, which it's funny, the funnier part, more, more funnier than my impression of Trump is the idea of him actually yeah, saying, saying he's wrong, yeah, right? Or resigning, yeah. right? That's the funny yeah. part. But if that had happened, I probably still want him to be held accountable on some mm-hmm. level, but I'd be more willing to entertain moving forward without an impeachment. Now, the first thing Marco says is that it's stupid because it's throwing gasoline on a fire and is basically just going to further upset the people who are already upset that Trump lost. This is like not trying a murder case because you're scared the cartel is going to come get you. <laughs> like, I mean, isn't it always the Republicans who uh, their mantra has been we don't negotiate with terrorists? Yeah. You know, we, we are so afraid now of these idiot Trumpers that we need to bargain with them. Like, if you guys won't get angry anymore, we'll let your leader off the hook. Yeah, like, no, that's since not when is that the standard? Yeah. He he must be held accountable in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. So then there's this little, this one's funny. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of comedy in this episode, Jay. But uh, there's this little gem from Kevin McCarthy, human block of wood, uh, where <laughs> where he both side, he, he does the both sides thing yeah. mm-hmm. with this and he blames you this is what that sounded like i also think everybody across this country has some responsibility think about four years ago after the president trump was sworn in what happened the very next day the title was resist you know here's the thing everybody across the country is responsible dustin it's my yeah, fault man. it's my fault because you see bad rob i was I was mean to Donald Trump and I refused to accept him as a president and a good president. I, I didn't he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it when you're mean to him. He doesn't like it. Okay? Exactly. He feels very hurt. He feels very alone. He has to go I know. eat the Big Macs. You know, it's not good. It's my fault. He had no choice but to incite an insurrection. See, he incited the insurrection, but I incited him to incite the insurrection. So therefore, it's my fault. That's very meta. Everybody across the country did this because we poked the bar. And had we just (laughs) let the bar eat us, five people would be alive. You don't want to poke the bar. And, you know, Donald Trump is the bar. Yeah. Sometimes (laughs) you poke uh, the bar, sometimes the bar pokes you. Exactly. So uh, let's talk quickly about uh, what we found out this week about Trump's future plans, whether oh, or not he gets impeached, which is looking less and less like. Well, first of all, we should we should say that impeachment. We should go into the fact that impeachment is not likely, right? Uh, conviction is not likely. Conviction I mean, I, is not likely. Look, yeah. I, I think that it's very yeah, sorry. Important. He got impeached. Convict, yeah. I meant to say conviction is not likely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and look, I, I agree with you. I, I think that even though we we've we've seen the cards. Uh, we've seen these senators' cards, and we know what's going to happen. Uh, the trial itself is still important. Yeah, no, absolutely, it is. Here's my prediction, and I, I stole this from Michael Knowles, conservative commentator, mm-hmm. um, but I think he's right. I think he's absolutely right. I think the Democrats are in a win-win here because they did the right thing by bringing the impeachment. Um, they know he's not going to get convicted. And then they can rail against the Republicans for 
you know, for turning a, a blind eye to what mm-hmm. Trump did and, and, and letting him off the hook. They could do that yeah. for four years. Plus, and this is the big kicker, they the Democrats secretly want Trump Trump to run in 2024. Oh, my they, gosh. They, it's the best thing to yeah. happen to their party since sliced yeah. freaking bread. Right. But absolutely. They, it's yeah. horrible for the Republicans. Of course, they want him to run because here's the thing. This is the big, this is what's been lost in this whole election because Trump made such a stir about fraud that non-existent election fraud that never was proven that people don't realize or haven't been talking about the fact that Trump won or, or sorry, Biden won this election handedly. Yeah. I mean, Biden, this was as much of a landslide as Trump has against Hillary Clinton. That's right. Um, you know, Biden, Biden was a, uh, you know, he beat him badly. He mm-hmm. definitely beat, you know, he killed him, yeah. frankly. And, and I think the Democrats are thinking, let Trump be the nominee. Because he will, be, if Trump is allowed to run, he mm-hmm. will run again in 2024. He mm-hmm. will be the nominee. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind about that. There's no one who's going to usurp Trump in the GOP. If he uh, runs, he'll you be know. it. I agree. Right. Right. Um, so he will do that and he'll lose. He'll mm-hmm. lose. And I think the Democrats are thinking we can retain power here for the next 16 years because of this. Sure. So why not let him do that? You know, if, if Biden won last time, Kamala Harris will win next time. And in fact, with that said, uh, there was a great article. Uh, there's, this article was in ABC News. Uh, Republicans in some battlegrounds uh, left GOP after uh, Capitol riot. Uh, apparently, over 10,000 people in the state of Arizona alone re-registered as Democrats the day after the riots, the the, the Capitol riot. I mean, that's that's incredible. So yeah. if that you know if that is true, and if Trump runs, he's going to lose badly. Um, so let's talk about what we found out this week uh, about Trump's future plans, because there was some talk earlier last week, I believe, about him starting his own party, the Patriot Party. Did you hear about this, Jay? Uh, I heard about it. And I don't know if you knew this, but the Patriot Party actually takes its name from a socialist party from the 60s. Oh, there which you I go. I thought was real fitting. Just good job Ironic. doing your research, whoever decided to name <laughs> I know. that. Um, we, we heard this week. Now, I was hoping for that because that would destroy the Republican Party. Certainly forever. would split the party, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I'm joking when I said I, I was hoping for that because I do, again, I believe that we need a strong Republican Party. But I was just like, you know, there's a part of me that wants them to get what they deserve, of course, being on the left. So I was sort of like, ah, yeah, start your own party because that was so a lot of people have asked me, you know, why would that be bad? Um, Trump would split the party in two. Essentially, he would have the the his base would go with his Patriot Party and then the sort of uh, conservative Republicans like me would sort of stay aligned and that would decrease the votership, obviously, by half. Yeah, it would be uh, terrible. Yeah, it'd be really, really bad. And, you know, it's it's I didn't really take this seriously. It was very, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he didn't come out and say it himself. Yeah, it was obviously an attempt to pressure the uh, the Senate proceedings right. from going forward. Yeah, you're exactly right. And yeah. I, I, so we found out just recently, I think in the last couple of days, that he dropped that idea. There was yeah. reporting from sources that he's not interested in that anymore. He's more interested now in helping uh, the Republicans gain back the House. Uh, he started a whole new thing. I, I forget the name of it. The but Office something like, of the Former President, I believe it is. Yeah, well, like the that. Office of the Former President, but it, he has a new slogan like oh. um, American Greatness or you know something cliche and Trumpy, of course. Yeah. But, uh, you know, here's the thing. I think the Republicans, between you and me, mm-hmm. well, 
and our and audience, everyone else between listening. you, me, and everyone else listening, I think the Republicans are making an enormous mistake by not impeaching Trump or, or figuring out a way to get him to not run. Because, you know, they're clearly doing it because they're afraid of the base. But as I've said before, they will, if they could figure out a way to get him out of there, in four years, yes, they'll deal with two years of backlash, or maybe three years of backlash, maybe yeah. four years of backlash of people saying, these guys are rhinos, they mm-hmm. never had our back, screw yeah. them, Mishmik China, you know, whatever whatever you want to, whatever yeah, nicknames they're going to come up with. Yeah, they, I've t-shirts. heard some right-wingers call, call Mitch McCall Mitch McChina. I, I like to call him Cocaine Mitch, personally. Yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I still believe, and I've said this before, that when it comes to the election in 2024, when it's Kamala Harris D. California mm-hmm. versus any Republican, even anyone. ones that Literally are rhinos, yeah. yes, they will come out. For, so why are they? Why are they doing? I don't know. Why are I don't they? Know. Yeah, I, it just doesn't it, make I mean, sense. You, you said it. It is the, them being terrified of the base. It's not even Trump himself anymore, which at one point it was. Uh, they right. feared retribution from the man. Now it, it's it's the people that that follow him, and uh, right. and uh, understandably, but not that that should stop them. In my opinion, like you said, take your lumps. Yeah. And get your party back. Right, right. Yeah, you know, so there was some talk, Jay, about um, about the idea that he doesn't need to be impeached, but they could pass some kind of resolution so that he can never run again. Do you know anything about this? So I, I've heard some conflicting reports. Um, some say that the conviction needs to happen and then a vote, which would be a simple majority vote, to ensure that he doesn't run again and would, wouldn't be able to keep certain... Uh, things that presidents keep, like security detail and some of the financial bonuses that presidents get after they're done with their term. Um, And I've also seen reports saying that this vote could happen separately and apart. So the the jury's out. I'll do some more research and hopefully uh, by our next pod, I'll have an answer definitively on the subject. Uh, But that, but, you know, it's, Look, it's just it's a silly mistake that they're making, in my opinion. Yeah. It's yeah, absolutely. it'd be so nice to have the Republican Party back without Trump. I would really mm-hmm. welcome that uh, personally. And it seems as though they're missing the opportunity. Yeah. And like I said, if they don't figure out a way to oust him, which it doesn't look like they're going to, he's going to be back in 2024. So good luck with that. Hold on to your hats, people. All right, moving on. Um, here's the deal, man. I got a rant for you this week, and it's going to be an epic one. Now, yeah. uh, if, if you guys haven't noticed, Justin and I are making a concerted effort to use each other's real names on the pod so that we avoid coming off as Justin and I, uh, as Justin put it to me, uh, like disc jockeys from K Rock. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> uh, I. But you gotta, you gotta. Remember, I have been calling this guy Jay for two decades, and he's yeah. been calling me Riz for the same amount of time. So yeah. uh, it, it is tricky. Old old habits die hard. Uh, it's tricky to get out of that habit. But with that said, Rants by Rob just doesn't have the same kind of teeth <laughs> uh, that Rants by Riz fair. has. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So we're sticking with the name for Great. this segment. I'm very this happy. This is Rants by Riz. Go. All right, guys, uh, this is going to be a very partisan rant in which I intend to I intend to uh, throw the gloves off and destroy what is left of the Republican Party and the cynicism that has overtaken the right wing media infrastructure. So if you like down the middle for its measuredness and desire to make peace with the other side, fast forward this particular rant because I'm pissed. (laughs) So uh, so last year. 
Conservative commentator Ben Shapiro released a New York Times bestselling book entitled How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. I think I even got one for, for Justin on his birthday. I loved it. Yes. The book expounded upon what Ben perceives to be the three things that are destroying the fabric of the country, which includes variations of one, the desire of some on the left to change American history in order to paint America in a negative light, two, cancel culture, which we know and well, uh, which we know which we know and love, um, and three, identity politics. All things that I have openly said on the show are not good for America nor public discourse. However, it hit me a couple weeks ago that there are likewise three steps that Republican politicians and their media apparatus regular, regularly partake in in order to stifle the effectiveness of government. So let's call my rebuttal to Ben's book how to destroy governmental progress in three easy steps while simultaneously appeasing to the unfounded and hysterical fears of your base in which you are responsible for implanting in their heads in the first place. I know the title needs uh, work. You got an acronym for that? Yeah, I have to figure out how to condense it. It's like a Fiona Apple record or something. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> uh, in this rant, I will compare the Trump administration's handling of COVID with that of the GOP's general strategy in addressing climate change, okay? Step one is to claim liberal hysteria. The problem barely exists, and if it does, it's not as big a deal as those liberals are making it out to be. We saw this attitude uh, in the early days of COVID coming directly from Trump when he made the case that this was just another liberal hoax. Uh, despite mountains of data uh, definitively showing the toll this virus has taken on our population with now over 400,000 Americans dead. The idea that this whole thing is liberal hysteria is a narrative that is still readily being pushed by the right to this day, with people that I know personally still claiming baselessly that every heart attack and murder victim in the country goes down in the books as COVID, which is artificially inflating the numbers. And all of that, of course, is bogus conspiracy theories. None of that is true. There's never been any evidence to prove this. We've even had a doctor on the show who said they don't do that. And he heads a uh, a emergency room department. Um, It is very similar to how they handled the climate crisis generally, right? The problem barely exists. And if it does exist, it's not as big uh, of a deal as the liberals are making it out to be. Put simply, step one of the process appeals deeply to conservative America that has been groomed by the right-wing infrastructure to believe that the more the left makes a big deal about something, the less likely it's actually a problem. And since they have also been groomed to believe the media is just an extension of the Democratic Party, we don't need to take the press seriously either. Media hysteria is the same thing as liberal hysteria. The next step in how to destroy governmental progress in three easy steps is to blame the states. Now, this step only happens when there's a Republican administration controlling the executive branch of government. But just like with step one, it appeals to a conservative America that has been groomed by the right-wing infrastructure to believe that the federal government serves no useful purpose, at least as long as a Republican administration is in office. So we saw this happening in real time with the COVID crisis. 
Uh, once it was apparent that this thing wasn't liberal hysteria and shit was going to hit the fan, step two gets implemented immediately and all blame gets pushed onto the states in the name of federalism. Now, the right has an added advantage when engaging step two because big blue states and big blue cities happen to be the most densely populated in the country. So when a virus sweeps across the nation, for instance, and takes lives and jobs along with it, the devastating effects of these losses are going to be more profound in blue states by virtue of population and density. Uh, but this puts the right in the position to blame liberal governance and mismanagement of the crisis and takes all of the onus off of the federal government. It works the same way with climate change. When wildfires ravage the state of California, which nearly every climate scientist in the world believes is an effect, at least in some uh, to some extent, an effect of global warming, the right blames state forest mismanagement and liberal governance. We can rest assured that when seawaters start to overtake the island of Manhattan, so long as there's a democratic government in place in the state of New York, the blame will be placed on liberal state governments, governance and not on climate change. That is a guarantee. Okay. Now, step three in how to destroy governmental progress in three easy steps is to yell socialism. When liberal hysteria turns out to not be hysteria at all, and the plan to blame the states in the name of federalism is fully implemented, big, blue, densely populated states and cities often have no choice but to impose draconian and harsh governmental measures in order to protect their densely populated citizenry. This puts the right-wing infrastructure in the position to compare the measures taken by blue states to that of the lack of measures taken by red states and creates the narrative that Democrats are using this crisis to usher in what has been their goal the entire time, which is to create a utopian socialist paradise. Now, I don't have to spend time elaborating, elaborating on the amount of resources the right has put into scaring their base about socialism over the years, but let's just say a health crisis or an economic crisis always seems to be the perfect time to pound on the socialist fear-mongering button. These three steps were clearly engaged by the Trump administration in order to absolve this administration of any responsibility for the devastation left in the wake of the pandemic. When the virus appeared, it was liberal hysteria. When people started dying in mass numbers, it was the state's fault. And when states had to do what, they, what was necessary to curb the damage, up to and including violating some of your constitutional rights, unfortunately, it was proof of the master plan. Liberals are attempting to turn America into a socialist nation. But I'm not done yet, okay? Along with pointing out the cynicism of right-wing politics, this rant is also going to be my final repudiation of Trumpism and should serve as an explanation for why Trump and his agenda need to be immediately purged from the Republican Party and why unity that we discussed earlier in this podcast will likely not be possible until that happens. Okay, Because there is indeed a fourth step. Let's call it a bonus step, if you will. And Ben Shapiro didn't have a bonus in his book. This bonus step is implemented to uh, you know, help destroy governmental progress, of course. And this step is unique to Trump and the administration that enabled him. Two stories broke this past week that deeply disturbed me. The first was a New York Times article titled Fauci, meaning Anthony Fauci, on what working for Trump was really like from denialism to death threats. Anthony Fauci describes a fraught year as an advisor to President Donald Trump on the COVID-19 pandemic. 
In the article, Dr. Fauci describes the, quote, liberating feeling of once again, since Biden took office, being able to get up here and talk about what you know, uh, what the evidence is, what the science is, and no, that's it. Let the evidence and the science speak for itself. Uh, Fauci goes on to detail the side effects of working for a president who politicized every institution he touched and demonizes the work of nonpartisan public servants. Fauci says, quote, one day I got a letter in the mail. I opened it up and a puff of powder came all over my face and my chest. Uh, That was very, very disturbing to me and my wife because it was in my office. So I just looked at it all over me and said, what do I do? The security detail was there and they're very experienced in that. They said, don't move, stay in the room. And they got the hazmat people. So uh, they came, they sprayed me down and all that, end quote. Okay, now the powder ended up being nothing. It was benign, right? But the harassment of Fauci by Trump administration officials and by the right wing press corps uh, is anything but benign. It has caused what will be long lasting damage to our institutions and to the important governmental element of nonpartisan, nonpolitical civil service. Trumpism teaches us that everything is political and everyone is partisan so long as their work doesn't resound to the political benefit of Donald Trump. Then there was perhaps an even more shocking piece of information earlier this week that came from Deborah Burks, the White House coronavirus response coordinator under Trump, uh, who retired after Biden was sworn in and is now apparently free to say what she didn't have the courage to say while she was serving at the pleasure of the president. This is what a piece of that reporting sounded like. I saw the president presenting graphs that I never made. Dr. Deborah Burks, the former coronavirus response coordinator under former President Donald Trump, revealed on Sunday that the White House used data and graphs she didn't prepare. I know that someone or someone out there or someone inside was creating a parallel set of data and graphics that were shown to the president. I know what I sent up. And I know that what was in his hands was different from that. Who higher was database. doing that? To this day, I don't know. Dr. Burks, who told CBS's Face the Nation that she always considered quitting her post, said her biggest regret was not speaking out more. I always feel like I could have done more, been more outspoken, uh, maybe been more outspoken publicly, publicly. I didn't know all the consequences of all of these issues. Okay, now, if you listen to that clip and your first instinct was to immediately think this person is somehow out to get Trump or is acting in a purely partisan political fashion, well, congratulations, you have been Trumpified. But for those of us in the real world, uh, not only is the allegation that White House insiders were changing information on the pandemic to appease Trump and downplay the severity of the virus for political purposes, not only is that potentially criminal, but these allegations should be deeply troubling to anyone who wants our country to succeed. The progressive attempt on behalf of Trump himself to demonize and politicize nearly every institution that works on behalf of the health and safety of the American people is the single worst side effect of the last four years. Since the insurrection on January 6th, conservatives and right-wingers everywhere have taken to being offended by the notion that they would be lumped in with the criminals who attempted to overthrow our government and subvert our democracy. 
even my rational good buddy and co-host extraordinaire, Justin Siegel over here, made the case in our last episode that those people are not representative necessarily of the base. They're just a fringe segment of crazy right-wingers. The only problem is that the polling data shows otherwise. While very few people are crazy enough to storm into a government building that is equipped with cameras and try to kidnap Congress people, according to a poll conducted by the Washington Post, a whopping 70% of registered Republicans said they agreed with President Trump's contention that he received more votes than Joe Biden and that the election was fraudulent. So while the criminal behavior of the insurrectionists Uh, may not represent the base, the mindset most certainly does. And that mindset is one that has been developed over time by a president who slowly manipulated half the country into believing that every institution of government is against him and therefore against you. So here's my conclusion. Bill Maher, who I've said before is sort of my celebrity political spirit animal, uh, because he's a liberal against leftism like myself, He got absolutely destroyed, just hammered by the left a few weeks ago, when in his closing monologue, he suggested that we cannot fall into the trap of equating the insurrectionists at the Capitol with those who simply voted for Trump. This is what a piece of that monologue sounded like. Finally, new rule as bad as last week was. Let's not confuse 5,000 people with 74 million. Even supporting the insurrection in spirit is, well, deplorable. But there's a difference between holding illiberal beliefs and acting violently on them. At least, that's what they always told me about Islamic terrorism. I've preached, and still do, that you can hate Trump, but not all the people who like him. And as counterintuitive as it may seem, you can like something run by assholes without being one yourself. Now, as someone who typically agrees with Bill Maher, I must say that I don't fully agree with him on this one. I may have before January 6, 2021. And I certainly don't hate anyone, even those who still support Trump. But looking at the polling and at how large, how such a large percentage of the Republican base has bought into Trumpism and all of its lies and has attached themselves not just to individual conservative policies that they used to like or that they may like, but to a much broader attack on all of America's trusted institutions, I'm getting to the point where I can no longer accept the person who still claims Trump wasn't all that bad or that they liked certain policies as a serious and or upstanding citizen. Yes, the reason people vote for politicians are complicated, right? I get it. And I'm by no means saying you have to vote for Hillary Clinton as the alternative. But how much more evidence do you need to see to get to the point where your feelings on the evidence that you've seen supersedes any good you think Trump may have done in the Middle East or otherwise. Unfortunately, I'm afraid to say that the idea of unity is not going to be possible until conservative America finally performs a collective purging of Trump and Trumpian ideology. To me, this is the only way we can wipe the slate clean and restart having ideologically-based conversations about the issues. Should I hold my breath for this to happen? Not if I want to live to be 41. Rant done. So, I don't have to hear his name again unless he does something new, right? That's what you're saying? Yes, yes. I think that's it. I think that's it. Unless he does something new. 
which right. he's going to do something new. So the idea that that's going to be the last time we talk about him is well. Is yeah, I think that hey, you didn't hear me say that just until he does something new. I tell you what, that was great. Since that was so well thought out, let me take it in, and I will reply on our next episode so you okay. can stay tuned. A little cliffhanger. I'll give cool. you a spoil alert, though. I agree with Bill Maher. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm not saying that I necessarily disagree completely. Yeah. No, I just I also don't agree completely. Yeah. Re-listen <laughs> yeah. again and then tell me I, what you think. That's my plan. Okay, guys. So uh, we've got a new segment today, and uh, this segment is going to take play take the place of our usual topic of the day. Uh, we had so much to get to on this that uh, we decided to forgo a topic of the day this week. This sort of is our topic of the day, and uh, you know. So a- as you may have noticed, uh, the news of the week was President Biden's executive orders, like we mentioned at the top of the show, to which there were many. If you've been flipping between CNN and Fox News, you're probably getting completely different narratives. Uh, we're here to break down those narratives and get to the crux of the issues. Uh, we're going to go through the substance of the executive orders and talk a little bit about the history of executive orders. This new segment is called Executive Action. Okay, so uh, before we get to the orders themselves, uh, you guys are once again lucky today because you're lucky because I brought my best buddy, Justin, along with me as usual to give you a buzzed history lesson on some of the history of executive action taken by various presidents along the way and what executive orders have typically been used for. All right, cousin, get to the buzzing. Hello, and welcome to Buzzed History. Today, we're going to address a topic that you aren't hearing anything about in the news at all these days, the executive order. An executive order is an official directive from the U.S. president to federal agencies that often have much the same power of a law. While it's important to note that the U.S. Constitution does not directly define or give the president authority to issue presidential actions, which include executive orders, presidential memoranda, and proclamations, the legal basis for the EO has multiple sources. The first is Article 2 of the United States Constitution, which gives the president broad executive and enforcement authority to use his or her discretion to determine how to enforce the law or to otherwise manage the resources and staff of the executive branch. The second source is based on expressed or implied acts of Congress that delegate to the president some degree of discretionary power or delegated legislation. It is essentially implied power derived from the aforementioned Article 2 of the Constitution, which states that as head of the executive branch and commander-in-chief of the armed forces, the president, quote, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Yep, that's all it says. Well, other than, quote, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. So an EO is an instruction from the president to the government about how to work within the parameters already set by Congress and or the Constitution, which is why we sometimes see these EOs reviewed, challenged, and even struck down by the court system. Checks and balances in action. All boiled down, the EO allows the president to push through policy changes without going through Congress. An EO is not a new law, and it is not an appropriation of funds. Only Congress can do both of these things. EOs do, however, have significant influence over the internal affairs of government, deciding how and to what degree legislation will be enforced, dealing with a wide variety of topics not limited to emergencies, waging wars, and generally fine-tuning policy choices in the implementation of broad statutes. 
Only the President of the United States can issue an executive order. Once these executive orders are issued, they remain in full force and effect until they are canceled, revoked, adjudicated unlawful, or expire on their terms. At any time, the President may revoke, modify, or make exceptions from any executive order, whether the order was made by the current President or predecessor. Like in the West Wing episode, Posse Comitatus, when President Bartlett had to temporarily sidestep or ignore one of his own EOs banning political assassinations. Hello. Morning, Morning, sir. sir. Mr. President, we wanted to lay out some of the rules. There are rules for these things? Uh, Yes, sir. The uh, first one being the National Security Act, which says basically that only the president can trigger a covert action. This isn't a situation where you need to know as little as possible. The law requires that you know everything. Doesn't the law also require that I not assassinate someone? Yes. Political assassination is banned by executive order. Two executive orders, as a matter of fact. I know. One of them was mine. The EO is law, but it was made up by the executive, and the executive can ignore it. Okay. Well... Surely this is the most absurd meeting I've ever sat in, and friends, that is saying something. Executive orders have been used for everything from setting holidays for federal workers to regulating civil service to designating public lands as Indian reservations or national parks, organize federal disaster assistance efforts, enforce civil rights legislation, and even assert, as I said, presidential war powers, among many other uses. With the exception of William Henry Harrison, who died after one month in office, all presidents since George Washington in 1789 have issued orders that generally can be described as executive orders. Washington's first order in June of 1789 directed the heads of the executive departments to submit reports about their operations. Sounds like a good idea. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln controversially used executive orders to suspend habeas corpus in 1861 and to enact the Emancipation Proclamation, the most famous EO, in 1863. During World War II in 1942, FDR infamously issued an EO mandating the internment of Japanese Americans. In 1948, President Truman issued an EO desegregating the nation's armed forces, while President Eisenhower used an order to send federal troops to integrate public schools in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957. The record for most executive orders in a presidency is firmly held by FDR, who had 12 years to do it in, but managed 3,721 EOs. Held within them was much of his New Deal. Woodrow Wilson, Calvin Coolidge, and Teddy follow with 1,803, 1,203, and 1,081, respectively. Between 1789 and 1907, U.S. presidents issued a combined total of approximately 2,400 EOs. Since 1908, when the orders were first numbered chronologically, presidents have issued more than 13,700 executive orders, clearly expressing the expansion of executive powers over the years. For those wondering about modern presidents, let's say starting at Reagan, we have issued 381 EOs, Bush 41 at 166, Clinton at 364, Bush 43 at 291, Obama at 276, and Trump with 220. President Trump did set a new record for the number of executive orders issued by a new president in his first week with six, just one more than President Obama. Within his first day, President Biden surpassed that number, which now sits at 32 executive orders within his first week in office. He has not stopped signing since. This has been another Buzz History. Buzz History. Excellent Buzz History. Really good background on all that, Justin. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Now, 
Before we detail some of the orders that Biden issued, I want to give a little more context, and some of this will be uh, reiterating some of the stuff that Justin talked about in his bus history. But as I am the left winger on the show, I feel compelled to break down right wing media spin because I think people hear certain things on Fox or read tweets from commentators, and it leaves them with an imperfect uh, narrative or an imperfect impression, okay. if you will, uh, about the nature of executive orders. Mm-hmm. So first, uh, we can't just look at one week of Biden's presidency in a vacuum and make the suggestion that he's going off the rails with these executive sure. orders, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Now, Trump issued, like you said, 220 or something orders yes. in in four years. Obama issued 276 in eight years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's less than Trump would have, Correct. presumably, in eight years, right? Yep. Ronald Reagan, as you mentioned, uh, hero of the Republican Party, issued more than any president since he was in office and more, uh, uh, the most since Eisenhower, I yep. believe. That's right. Um, so, so this is nothing new is the point. And if you're, if you're just getting into politics, which I think some people in our audience are, this, they sort of just got into politics with Trump. Yeah. Uh, and you're hearing Sean Hannity on Fox tell you that what Biden is doing is abnormal. It really isn't. Okay. The amount of EOs on the first week may be unique, mm-hmm. but I, I, I think we can also make a very good case that there was a lot more to clean up this time. I mm-hmm. mean, by, by all accounts, the Trump administration left the mess. We're in the middle of the most severe health crisis in a century. We're on the cusp of a great, you know, probably one of the greatest economic crises, crises uh, since the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And we've seen more racial strife in the last four years than we have since the 60s civil rights era. So there was probably more to do this time around than usual administrations. Right. Yeah. Look, I don't I don't love the whole idea of the EO in general. I don't mm-hmm. like presidencies by EO. Uh, you know, it's start. Yeah. You know, obviously there's a history of this. Um, yeah. So I don't love the idea. I understand, you know, and we'll we'll go through this. That's, and a, that's another argument, though, because, you know, and that I was I just get you almost took the words out of my mouth. Hey, I was just going to say that doesn't necessarily mean yeah. that all EOs were useful or good Correct. Or, or, or that governing by executive orders what the founders intended, because it probably isn't. Right? I think we're going to talk yeah. about that as we close uh, tonight yes. so we can get to that it, then. Exactly. It's yeah. a different conversation entirely. Mm-hmm. But but one thing I want to point out just to give some perspective here, is that the Democrats have full control of the government, okay? Every single executive order that was issued uh, by Biden in the last week, week and a half, would have been passed anyway in the Senate. So it's not like Biden was issuing these orders to go around the GOP or to kneecap them. Um, He issued these orders to save time and not have to go through the whole process because sometimes at the start of an administration, you have to do that. But- all of these orders would have passed anyway. I mean, I, look, I, I hear that I, your yep. first hundred days is the time to get something done. Uh, the Biden administration is in big trouble in terms of his legislative agenda because they have a coronavirus to deal with. So right. there's right. a lot of uh, things he, he, like you said, he needs to clean up in terms of the virus. So it's, his agenda could very well be hijacked entirely from that. So I understand the want and desire for him to pass yeah. these things by EO. That being mm-hmm. said, the filibuster does exist and you can mm-hmm. push that to 60 votes in the Senate and you could have uh, negotiations that make something a little bit more moderate, which is what yeah. I would I would hope that could would... take up his entire term. Though. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, look, again, I yeah. understand why he would do this. I just don't have to agree with it. Right, right. No, of course. And and by the way, we, it's a good time to remind everyone that the government was designed that way for all those people who say, why does the government never get anything done? Yeah, it was literally designed to not get anything very happy done. when our government's yes. not getting anything done. Let's, right. Let's exactly. talk about that, all this stuff. The, 
the founders knew that and put all this in place um, so that it would be very hard to 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 get. Stuff well, you done, don't want right? you don't want the slingshot back and forth. I mean, it, you know, yeah. it, it, you get whiplash. Yeah. Now, one more thing before we detail the the actual uh, executive orders. Now, because I pay attention to right wing press, uh, the most pervasive narrative that I'm hearing is, quote, after four years of calling Donald Trump a dictator, Biden spends his first week in office governing like a dictator. So uh, some dumb right-wing commentator tweeted tweeted out something to that effect. And uh, one of my hobbies in life, Jay, is uh, triggering our editor-in-chief, Clay Cogman. Hey, you're really so, good at uh, it. I, yeah, I am. So I sent him that tweet and... Uh, you know, I just, I, I just want just for for, for gigs, and I just yeah. wanted to get his his thoughts, right? And uh, you know, I just texted it to him. I was like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Uh, and his response was both on point and comical. Okay, so, uh, so much that I felt compelled to read it on the pod. Do you mind? Mm-hmm. No, go for it. Okay, so uh, he said, "Quote." No one thinks Trump is a dictator because he issued some executive orders. No one operating in good faith and with their head not stuck in their rear uh, would argue otherwise. Uh, here's a short list for why people may have called Trump a dictator. An affinity <laughs> for strongmen. Treating the world's dictators uh, like royalty. Mm-hmm. Corruption all over his administration and throughout his term. Uh, a hatred of independent news media. A desire to censor said, said media and any other dissenting voices. Bribery as his go-to way of uh, of doing things, lying constantly to everyone, unchecked nationalism, a love of cult, uh, cult-like supporters, a love of rallies with said supporters, a love of military parades, and we could go on and on. Then he goes, as a bonus, to connect this to the larger point, this is what all right-wing commentators try to do after four years of trying to defend the indefensible. Uh, they try to assess every single little thing in a vacuum as if all 320 million of us don't have a shared national nightmare of experiences that informs our feelings about Trump and his enablers. You don't get to isolate one stat as uh, one stat you like as if it speaks volumes to the exclusion of everything else. The fact that certain members of the right wing press need to resort to such a context specific stat executive orders and limit it to such a meaningless time period one week is merely confirmatory of how short the straws that they have to grasp for are. Uh, Biden is replacing someone who has sat by and done practically nothing while our country was completely destroyed by a pandemic he wasn't prepared for and denied the existence of for 10 months. The amount of work that needs doing right now is staggering. So uh, thank you, Clay. Uh, That's a good opinion that I think we uh, needed to share because, like I said, I thought it was comical as well. So uh, trying to say that Biden is the real dictator because uh, he spent his first week in office governing by EO is stupid. That's the bottom line. But with that said, let's go through the EOs, dude, and break some of them down a little. There are a lot of them. So we are going to rush through some of them and get into conversations uh you know brief conversations about the ones that are a little more important yeah. so uh, let's start at the top right now how predictable starting how at the top. Pa- how predictable is a very good yeah. place to start so like 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 rob said we're gonna skip through some of these so so go ahead rob kick us off okay so so uh, re-engaging with the world health organization yeah fine to me the, the, yeah totally fine so uh, this is a good thing uh, i know a lot of a lot of uh, the right wing sort of talking point on this is that the the World Health Organization is a shill uh, organization for the Chinese government. You hear them say that a lot. Uh, I honestly don't care whether that's true or not, whether they favor China. Uh, I think uh, uh, the, the sort of Trumpian tendency to withdraw from the rest of the world is very dangerous. And 
it, it, I put this in the category of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Like, and I'm not saying the the, the World Health Organization is our enemy, but. We need to always have no, a know what's going table. on. Yeah, yeah, with the finger on the pulse. And look, we can navigate it as things come up. It's still right. never going to be as bad as the UN. So let's move on. Yeah, I don't see any negatives from this. So I think yeah. it's innocuous and, yeah. and great. Uh, next, uh, creating uh, create position of COVID COVID nineteen response coordinator. Great. Uh, again. Perfect. Good job. Uh, as a side, for anyone who who uh, today's Wednesday, you guys will be listening to this on Thursday. But there was a COVID response team meeting this morning mm-hmm. that was that aired. It was a breath of fresh air of scientists giving you the facts, not sugarcoating anything, no politics behind it. It really felt good. I was very happy about it. Agreed. Uh, Number three is uh, one of the more controversial ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rejoin Paris Climate Agreement. I think Justin disagrees with me on this. I think it's a good thing for the same reason that reengaging with with. With the health organization is a good thing. Uh, it, we need to be involved in world. We need to have a seat at the table in anything that that is a global initiative. Yeah, look, and I, I agree with you to a degree because it's non-binding, right? But we've already right. discussed this on the show to some extent. I'll go into a little bit more detail. So while I think that a change in environmental policy should be weighed with considerations for global warming, even if global warming is a cyclical problem, it's happening. This can't be done with a group of countries where each country has a different set of parameters, challenges, and problems. This issue, to me, can't be generalized. Additionally, right. why would we take such great length and co- great lengths and cause problems for our own economies when the world's biggest contributors to the problem uh, China is not going to comply with any of what's being asked here. As I said, the agreement's non-binding. They continuously falsify data related to their coal consumption and air monitoring. What can really expect from them here? So the Paris Agreement is a waste of taxpayer money. We ship tax dollars to a green climate fund to subsidize green energy and pay for other climate adoption and mitigation issues in poorer nations. Obama, for example, shipped a billion dollars without congressional authorization. And finally, leaving the agreement never meant we weren't going to make concessions for the effects of global warming. It just means that we're going to do it on our own terms in ways that make sense for our economy and our country. We are a world power and we are members of a world community, of course, but certain problems require customized solutions. To me, this is one of them. Okay, I understand that position. Um, I actually want to want to come up with a with a really well researched rebuttal to that. Yeah. Because um, frankly, I'll be honest, uh, I don't know much about the details of the Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah. My impression, though, on this whole uh, on re-entering it is it's largely symbolic. Um, you know, remember, guys. This cannot. This shouldn't be lost on anyone out there. The Democrats won this presidency handily again, and they control the entire government. Mm-hmm. Anyone out there who thinks they weren't going to push climate change agenda yeah, is is smoking crack. Yeah, this I mean, be, should not be a surprise to it, anybody, right? It, it would be like like uh, Republicans winning winning it all and not doing anything with tax. Yeah, tax, cuts, tax cuts you know sure. it, yeah. it, this has been a premier agenda item yeah, for the bread, democrats it's bread and butter it, it, yes it, and and i happen to be one of those people i don't consider myself a democrat anymore but i happen to be one of those people who deeply cares about the climate and mm-hmm. does believe in the science and so i'm happy about this because i think again we need to be on that world stage uh even if like you said some of the other countries involved are not uh, abiding by every mm-hmm. law. Maybe we could change that. The, the, the step one is, is to join, right? And then step two is to change the uh, other's behavior. Yeah, for me, it's monetary and it's about uh, making sure that this problem isn't, like I said, it doesn't come with generalized solutions because I don't think that that's, you know, it's the same thing as playing identity politics. It just doesn't work for everybody. Right. 
Right. Now, uh, next, uh, re, uh, so th- th- this is also a one of the probably the most controversial ones so far. It's yes. a revoking the permit for Keystone Pipeline, just mm-hmm. like with the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. Uh, this was an environmentally, uh, you know, minded regulation here. Again, this is a climate thing. Mm-hmm. It's something that's important to Democrats. The narrative you're hearing, if you listen to right wing press, is that it you know killed a ton of jobs. Now, a lot of those jobs ended up being Canadian jobs, right, Jay? Yeah, well, that's what's so crazy. Along like this announcement made less news than Ted Cruz highlighting the estimated eleven thousand jobs that would be lost because of this EO. And right. and that's you know you see that you're talking about a narrative. That's the narrative that's pervading you know that this has probably caught more uh press than any other eo right you know the the washington post felt this was misleading because of the missing context these jobs are temporary which is a little silly temporary that's the big thing well all all construction jobs are temporary when you're done building the thing the job's done so well well, not to mention and i feel like i have to throw this in here we spent the last two episodes in our topics of the day Mm -hmm. talking about globalization and automation and we both came to the to to the conclusion that yes people are displaced sometimes you gotta uh, break some eggs if you're going to make an omelet right i agree the the difference here is that this isn't for technological innovation this is for a, a climate issue um, right. and so and, which is there, important it's important but there are a couple of things that go along with that so you know uh canadian prime minister justin trudeau was also upset obviously about losing these jobs yeah. he, he was quoted as saying while we welcome the president's commitment to fight climate change we're disappointed but acknowledge the president's decision to fulfill his election campaign promise on the keystone xl uh, it wasn't as far as Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who actually went as far as to threaten legal action after this EO, uh, the, the reports of this EO were discovered. So there are other international concerns here, and this is what I'm talking about. As this oil is coming from Canada, it has to go somewhere in order for Canada to maintain its economy, right? It's got to sell it. So not all of it will come here now via trains and trucks, by the way, which also, they're bad for the environment. So we've just moved them from this pipeline to come on trains and trucks, which pollute the the environment as well. So if all of it isn't coming here, it will more than likely also go to China, the world's largest oil importer at 10 to 11 million barrels per, per day. In the meantime, because of the Paris Accords, we'll be buying Chinese wind and solar technology, neither of which does as effective of a job as natural gas, which, by the way, the Russians will be selling to Europe as this whole thing plays out. So Additionally, an increased supply of oil from Canada would decrease our dependency on Middle Eastern supplies, which you know is something I'm very passionate about. This, trans- this translates to, roughly, either oil from very polite friends very close to us, or oil from very scary, sketchy friends far from us. Friends, in quotes. I'll let you decide which is better. So this, in the end, it doesn't just cost the 11,000 jobs. It affects our cost of living in the end, we've discussed, our opportunities, and where everyone sits on the international stage uh, international stage, which is really what I'm concerned about mostly. Right now, I, and I know you put research into that. Uh, you know, I did some some research on the other side too, and and mm-hmm. I found an article uh, in the New Yorker that I actually posted on on some of my socials. The the article uh, was titled "Joe Biden's Cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline is a Landmark in the yeah. Climate Fight," and it goes to detail. It go, goes through detail on on how much. Uh, pollution was deriving out of this project how mm-hmm. it was a temporary project um and it does talk a little bit about some of your concerns as well i think the overall thought from the biden administration 
was that this is a win for the climate. We need to give the base a win on that because yeah. it again it is a premier issue. It's the issue on you, the left. You, you got to balance it's, that thing. It, it, it's it's this is always going to these two things are always going to tug at each other. The economy and right. climate. And you have to figure out right. where, you know, where in your agenda depending on 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 uh, your administration where you sit. Right. Okay, uh, and perhaps we'll do uh, more of a deep dive on this kind of thing in the future, but let's move on. Yeah. Uh, so uh, next is asking agencies to extend eviction moratorium. I think we mm-hmm. both can agree that's great. We're in a pandemic. Yep. Um, the more help, the better. I said that at the top of the show. Yep, same uh, for the next one. Next, a- right, asking education department to extend student loan pause. Very, very good. I have a student loan. Interesting to note, the Bernie bros are extending that to 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 try and push the envelope to get them to cancel all student debt. I don't think that that's going to happen, but it's interesting of note. Very good. Yes, yes. Uh, Again, I'll take any help I could get from the government at this (laughs) point. Uh, Next, uh, N1776 Commission, uh, which is an initiative to advance racial equity. Now, this is a little controversial as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the 1776 Commission was Trump administration's direct response to the 1619 Project, which is uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, New York Times article that we really haven't talked much about. No, it won a prize because it's uh, some people call it alt history. It created it, it, it talked about a different uh, uh a different scenario and how uh, america was founded and gave a different viewpoint on yeah. it and a lot of people were very very offended by it including mm-hmm. a lot of people i know thought that the history wasn't correct and why it won a pulitzer prize was ridiculous a lot of schools are starting to include the 1619 project mm-hmm. it, yes public schools in their curriculum yep. now this goes back to something we talked about with with our buddy mark cogman mm-hmm. in episode 10 i bring up that episode a lot because he made a lot of good points and one of the points he made was that it's not indoctrination to say here's extra material that you haven't heard yet read this along with the other material yeah uh so so uh, I read the 1690 Project, mm-hmm. the entire thing. I mm-hmm. suggest everyone should. There, are, I, I'm no historian, but I know a good deal about history from documentaries I've watched and books I've read. Uh, I found that some of it I thought was inaccurate, and yep. some of it I agreed with. Yeah. But I have two kids who go to public school, and I would have no problem with a teacher saying, here's another perspective on uh, American history and its founding. Mm-hmm. Read this one along with the old one. I don't right. think there's anything wrong with that. And I think Biden's uh, uh, you know, EO here to end the 1776 commission is basically them just saying, listen, we're going to put uh, you know, we want all the history to be mm-hmm. out here, not just the history that makes you feel good. Yeah. Okay? Well, I mean, look, I, I read the 1776 report, too. And to me, this is something that I was very bummed to see go, to be perfectly honest. And I think it was thrown out with the rest of the stuff because it had Trump's name on it. But hadn't had it not had his name on it, I think that this was something we could have kept. As you said, the 1619 Project, you know, it stated things. I, I read it as well. It stated things like yeah. America's true genesis coincided with the arrival of the first slave on American soil, which obviously isn't true. The genesis of America is July 4th, 1776, and was not alone rooted in slavery. Uh, There were some pretty incredible documents written and some blood, sweat, and hope to go along with them. The 1619 Project essentially does away with the Founding Fathers' belief in human dignity, unalienable rights, personal autonomy, 
all American principles in lieu of slavery, yeah, no, fascism, communism, you know, all of these things, uh, you know, identity politics, like we said. Now, yeah. I'm, yeah. as we talk about, I'm prepared to hear an argument for including the full story. But my right. problem with this is that teaching our ch- children that the Revolutionary War was merely an effort to preserve slavery, I don't see the point of that. We've discussed this yeah. sort of, you know, ad nauseum on, on the podcast. Of course, and we could get into this forever. But, you know, again, I don't see a problem with with introducing critical thinking to children. I'm totally or, with that. You know, I'm yeah. totally with that. But yeah. my issue here in terms of this mm-hmm. EO is that the 1776 yeah. report... It discussed the brilliance of the founding fathers and our founding documents because this is the truth, but it also discusses the Trail of Tears, the Three-Fifths Compromise, the dichotomy in ways in which slavery transgressed our founding principles. So it does discuss both. It's balanced. And... And, you know, I, I like it far better than I like, you know, the, the Times piece. So, you know, we should have government commissions that explore what we're teaching our children in public school. Um, mm-hmm. as, as Ronald Reagan famously said, we must bring balance to the force. Wait, 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 hang on. That's not right. He said an informed patriotism is what we want. And, and yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I, I take it this is an EO that you didn't enjoy. No, I did not. I, I was sad to see right. it go, actually. Yeah, you know. I suggest everyone read the the 1619 project. Read them both. Uh, like I said, the 1776 yeah, I, uh, report is also out. Right, right. Um, these are competing viewpoints for the founding of America. And you know, the truth of the matter is, none of us were there. So I think both of these are uh, should be included in the conversation yeah. and should be called out. I, I'd rather call out things that are incorrect and explain why they're incorrect. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's disinfectant is the uh, or sunlight is the best disinfectant, That's right? Mm-hmm. Like like let's shine a light on all this stuff and analyze it and then yeah. and and figure it out. Very you good. know, but uh, yeah, I don't like the idea of 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 shutting down anything because we don't like it or we think that it's teaching kids the wrong thing. That yeah. rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm with you. Uh, next, uh, revoke order to exclude undocumented migrants from the census. This is also a little bit controversial. I am on the fence about this one because undocumented migrants are not uh, citizens. However, uh, the Democrats are doing this. This is a very well, it's redistricting one. and it's representation. It's pe- it, it, period. Yeah. That's what it is. But I actually right. so did... let's explain that a little. So, Why don't you explain that a little? Yeah. All right. Essentially, redistricting in the U.S. Is, is 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 the process of drawing electoral district boundaries. Right. And, and that's can, based on population. It's based on population. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Which is exactly right. It's based on population. Yeah. So the census determines right. where the electoral districts exist. Right. And it can control, it, it can have an impact on the balance of power. Um, Correct. So, yeah, I'm on the fence about this one. Uh, you know, as I've stated before, uh, sort of briefly, we've never really had a full in-depth conversation about immigration. Well, it's re- this is this is even more interesting because it sort of hasn't been litigated. I did some research and some digging because mm-hmm. just to see, like, where's the precedent? Uh, And the precedent, by the way, has been to include the undocumented immigrants. We've always counted them. The definition drawn from that comes from the 14th Amendment stating, and this is where it's it's taken from, it's that we we shall include the, quote, whole number of persons in each state when determining the number of representatives when when we that we uh, apportion amongst the states. But it goes on to exclude Indians not being taxed. And, And actually, this came up in the Supreme Court. Recently, they punted this issue after the oral arguments, agreeing to wait until they had more information, for example, like how many aliens would be excluded. But the argument stands regarding Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, which, by the way, was adopted on July 9th, 1868, as one of the Reconstructionist Amendments proposed in response to issues related to former slaves following the American Civil War. Should we include non-citizens in a citizen census? It's interesting. And uh, 
It's a widely ignored piece of constitutional law is what I found out. It's only settled, like I said, because of precedent. Um, the Re- Reapportionment Act of 1929 is the only place where it was kind of litigated, which fixes the number of House seats at 435, but it doesn't really address this specific issue. And I think this is exactly a case for the Supreme Court. It requires an interpretation right. of the Constitution. Did the creators of the 14th Amendment mean whole person as just a human being, or did they mean whole person as a human being and citizen of the United States has not been litigated yet. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, preserve DACA. Um, that's the next one. Now this is actually one I, I I do feel very strongly about. I think it's a good thing. Now DACA, of course, is the deferred action for childhood arrivals. These are, uh, undocumented uh, immigrants who are here from uh, for no fault of their yeah. own. They're, they uh, came with their parents. With average their kids. age twenty four is what I read. Yep they've they've become American citizens. Mm-hmm. They have assimilated into America. Most of them are very successful. Yep. Uh, there's been very little crime in the group. Also and true. I got to tell you, I think. Uh, as, and we've talked about this several times now uh, mm-hmm. since the election. I think Republicans are stupid to not embrace DACA because well, I believe that, that DACA. Yeah. yeah, well, well, not just that. I think the DACA population is much we'll more Republican. conservative yeah. than than they think. Yeah, they will vote Republican within the net. You know, when they become fully fledged adults, you know, um, they will. Uh, they're a largely uh, religious community mm-hmm. and their version of the American dream is going to align more with that working class base from the Republican party than it will with the, with the coastal elitist Democrats. It just yeah. will. Look, I, I, I totally get it. And I know the argument for it. And additionally, what you didn't mention is that these people are, are doing the jobs that Americans do not want to do. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, you know, added to everything else, I completely get it. But taking the politics out of it for, for just a second, the argument yeah. against this, it's clear they do take resources from taxpayer dollars. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's my argument again. There's no, per, there's no, there's no perfect solution to this, but, no. uh, you know, along with this EO, uh, president Biden also extended an eight year path to citizenship. My larger problem comes with that because this comes with a five year path to temp status with a green card after background checks and paying taxes, and then a three year path to naturalization. Now, my issue with it, is that not included in this path is a mandate to learn English, which is the de facto mm. national language, nor right. does it include any type of class on our history as a country or our constitution and related documents. I believe that these things are essential to creating an informed and responsible citizenry, and I think mm-hmm. that, that would, I would really like to see that included. I'm all for a path to citizenship if you're already here, but yeah, I would like yeah. to see these things included. Right. I think we could leave it at um, that we both want to see immigration reform. Yeah. Yeah. That's and great. by the way, uh, the the DACA population is not eligible to vote, and they don't vote. Correct. Right until they become citizens. So yes. yeah. um, I've heard some people, uh, some of my right wing friends, make the uh, make uh, make uh, try to make the point that um, uh, parts of the, the country that have lar- that have well, no, that, yeah, the parts of the country that have large DACA populations are, mm-hmm. are changing the elections, and it's just not true. They don't yeah. vote. Agreed. So uh, there you go. We uh, we myth bust there, didn't we, Jay? <laughs> we did indeed. Yeah. So uh, next, uh, requiring masks on all federal property. I, I love this. I don't great. see any problem Fantastic. with it. It's great. Now, of course, there was a little bit of controversy because Biden the next day was like on yeah. federal property without a mask, but he was all alone. That's but fine. Yeah, you yeah, know, it was yeah, just fodder it. for a late night kind yeah, of yeah. thing late night humor uh next uh travel uh reverse travel ban on muslim countries now uh 
the travel ban wasn't actually a Muslim ban. It was no. called that by no, people no. on the left. Yeah, mislabeled, yeah. So by go the into this a little more. Yeah, so real quickly on this. I, I actually yeah. personally take a more measured approach when it comes to this issue. I think not mm-hmm. enough people remember 9-11 and what happened afterwards with the Taliban and ISIS. I know that not all people from this particular region are terrorists, of course, but I also yeah. know that terrorists don't play by what one might call rules. And so if right. that means we need to limit the travel of people from Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, Tanzania, and Nigeria, fine. Now, like we just said, there were also restrictions on Chad, North Korea, and Venezuela. So calling it a Muslim ban is not wholly accurate. Uh, you know, all one needs to do to, for, for me is look at what is happening in England or France to see why, if worked through the right way, this kind of ban, along with allowance for some nuance, could be a, a not so much of a bad thing, in my opinion. Yeah. It's another subject that we should really tackle on the topic of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, These are, Muslim immigration. Uh, that's the thing. And, These and, all bring up yeah. very, very large topics that we could go on and on mm-hmm. and on about. Yes. Yeah, so know that this is a very, very brief dive into all of these, yeah. and they, almost all of these require deep dives, which we will do, so you should keep listening to the show. It's almost like an advertisement for us to it's true. keep it's going. It's a little teaser to, to see what will happen. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a teaser. Yeah, exactly. Um, so next, uh, stop construction of border wall. Can we play the, uh, yeah, the I know theme you love again this. For, you love this. From, the, from the fighting Irish? Sure. Yeah. Now, let me, just, let me just tell you something. I, I have a whole thing about this, because yeah. the border wall... It was the, the narrative that people like Nancy Pelosi and some of the stupider Democrats were pushing out that it was racist or not, you know, not our, in our character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was all bullcrap. That wasn't the right argument. Yeah. The uh, right argument for the border wall being stupid is that it's stupid. <laughs> it's a waste of money. It is. It, yes. You can find a couple of people, a couple of ICE agents who work on the border who will say, oh, the wall is great. It works. Anyone with half a brain should understand the fact that this was one of those those political topics that was a a huge part of the 2016 election. We haven't talked about it much here Mm -hmm. on the show, if at all. That was a Um, it was probably the biggest. It was was a massive, massive campaign promise, and I always I could never wrap my head around the people who think. Who who thought that this would be effective? Okay, mm-hmm. have you ever seen the movie uh, Old Con- No Country for Old Men? I have, of course you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you haven't, by the way, you, listeners out there, Great you should movie. all see that. Uh, that movie was basically a giant metaphor, and what mm-hmm. the metaphor was What's the metaphor, was that, Rob. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What's the metaphor? So, uh, the, what the metaphor is is it's essentially um, being an analog player in a digital world. It's mm-hmm. the idea that these old police forces that were in West Texas that had always done things one way and were able to sort of control their the territory were dealing with a menace that they had never dealt with and that they eventually just sort of succumbed to and said, we don't have the gun, the, the manpower or the uh, maneuvering skills to to uh, you know go up, to, to go up against mm-hmm. this kind of menace and yeah. you know the main character in that movie uh, Anton Chigurh is 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 sort of like a caricature of the Mexican drug cartels mm-hmm. it's the idea that these they're ruthless it's a different kind of enemy that you ever saw before and what the sort of final scene of that movie and you know not not to give spoiler alerts here but is sort of the realization that we're never going to get a handle on this problem. Yeah. It, we just don't have the ability to ever fix it because it's just beyond us. Mm-hmm. It's beyond our ability. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you could sort of compare that to the, to the way that I think of the border wall is that you're dealing with drug cart. If you're really trying to get cartels to stop getting drugs over the border, do you think cartels are scared of the wall? 
Like these are sophisticated cartel, sophisticated systems that have um, technology that rivals the technology we have at the border. I am, and, and I am a, by the way, uh, all for American sovereignty. I'm for border control mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. I just would rather spend that money on high end cameras yeah. and more sophisticated so, yeah, technology. Look, look, I think I think it's a misnomer when people talk about the wall because there there were plans for some of these other things you're talking about. It's it, it's not. It, it's an imper- it's another imperfect solution to a a very nuanced problem, which has to include this technology and has to in- does have to include a physical barrier as well. I, I, it's not it's not either or for me. It's both and. Uh, but there's actually right. a bigger problem that we're missing here, and that's the possibility that, that that I sort of uncovered in digging around about this problem of illegality of the EO by halting construction paid for by money Congress had approved and earmarked for the wall through this year, through 2021. Um, and by the way, they would also have to continue to pay the contracts, uh, even though there wasn't any work continued. So there might be billions of dollars being spent. Um, Lewis right. Fisher, that, who... That, but, but before you even go on, then you have the yeah. Steve Bannons of the world that were that were, well, that were scamming yeah, Republicans. Yeah, that's a different story entirely. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that was ridiculous. I had to throw that in there. But yeah, Lewis yeah. Fisher, who's going to be very excited that I'm mentioning his name because he's a Library of Congress senior specialist on separation of powers. I imagine he's not quoted often. Uh, and he said, if, if, if Biden is halting the expenditure of DOD funds that Trump reprogrammed to build the wall, which we know he did, I think Biden is acting properly. If Biden is doing more then he might be acting improperly, which is interesting. So uh, much to what we were talking about, uh, former CBP acting director Mark Morgan in pointing to then-Senator Biden's vote in the Senate in 06 for 700 miles of double-tier border fencing. And the Obama administration, miles of built border fencing, said, there was a reason the Obama team built walls. Every measure of success improves where we have the wall, technology, and personnel. So sort of backing up what I'm saying. It's not just the one thing. We do need a physical barrier. If that's not a wall, some kind of fencing, it needs to be something. There needs to be technology and there needs to be people there. And that's why this will, this will work to some degree at, right. a better, to, at a better rate than it's working now. We know that for sure. Yeah, uh, there are so many problems and so many different things I've heard about it. I just, you know, I, again, uh, maybe it's because I am a technology guy. Yeah, just the the idea of a wall. Just well, the fact again, that people it, got so excited about that, this. Like it, again, it's dumbing it down. It's really simplifying right. it in terms. It's not just the wall. It, it can't be. Um, right. Okay. So, so moving on, we should it, do a deep dive on this. We should. We should it, it's interesting. Dive. Yeah. Uh, how much yeah. can we? How much okay. can we talk about a wall in thirty minutes? It'll be fun. Well, so, it, you know, not just the wall, but yeah. just we should include that in our discussion of immigration sure. and border and border yeah, security yeah, and all of that stuff. One more right, little piece right, of the EO, because in addition, it's it's important uh, and it's ongoing mm-hmm. litigation. So, in okay. addition to the border wall halt, President Biden put a moratorium on deportations for a hundred days, which was actually suspended after a federal judge granted Texas AG Ken Paxton's request. For a temporary restraining order, Paxton arguing the moratorium would be harmful to the state of Texas. He said, our state defends the largest section of the southern border in the nation. Failure to properly enforce the law will directly and immediately endanger our citizens and law enforcement personnel. So it wasn't widely reported, but this EO, EO is actually on hold pending this, this uh, litigation. So it's going to be interesting okay. to see what happens. Very interesting. Yep, yep. So we'll keep it posted on that. Now, the next one is uh, perhaps the most controversial one. It's to combat discrimination based on gender identity and military allowances. Now, I want to preface uh, by saying something because this this one is very nuanced, and we do need to do a deep dive. You, if you've been listening to Down the Middle for now what twenty seven episodes, you might wonder why at this point Justin and I, neither of us, have ever said the word abortion. 
And uh, the reason for that is that Justin and I decided at the very beginning of this venture that it's the one topic we weren't going to touch. And the reason for that, Justin and I both have our own views, but the the real reason that we don't want to talk about it on this kind of show is that we realize that nothing either of us can say is going to move the needle at all. This is very often a religious viewpoint, and everyone is very dug into their view, so I'm not going to say anything to convince you, and Justin's not going to say anything to convince you otherwise, and I, I think... We just decided that it's too divisive of an issue and something that we don't want to bring up. In the same vein as that, maybe, perhaps, is the topic of uh, gender identity and transgenderism, but I think it's a little less, so I do want to talk about it um, because I think it's it's something new that we do need to discuss. So I have I have my thoughts on the matter. Justin, why don't you tell me how you feel go go into what the bill does first and the executive order even backing up before that like i there's a i'd like to give a preamble as well because i think you know we've gotten to the this point in the show where we sort of have to begin discussing these hard things because they are thrust into the in into the political arena and i don't feel that we need to back off from discussing them they're hard things for numerous reasons as you said they are hard because people are extremely dug in on either side which means they've stopped listening to each other which is always a bad thing in my opinion They are hard because they deal with people's experiences and who they see themselves as, which is always a difficult subject to discuss because of the obvious passion involved therein. And these things are hard because there's a great deal of information that is currently being sussed out, especially in the realm of what we're about to discuss. Some of the science is nuanced, some of it even inconclusive. And so people are guided just by their opinions and and their feelings instead of facts and science, which we just don't have yet and may never have conclusively. So we also have the internet, which is very good at pumping out articles with competing sets of what I'll call information paraded as facts. So before we begin discussing these hard things, I think it's important to say all of this out loud, that these are hard things. And I'm positive I'm going to say some unpopular things that anger some people. You might step into that realm as well, Rob. Um, It's impossible not to do given the climate and the issues we're discussing. But I do promise one thing, and I know I'm speaking for you as well, Rob. I will always hear everyone out. I promise I will be respectful. I promise I will do my very best to be empathetic and work to understand the position of whomever, whomever I'm speaking about and speaking to. Lastly, in my little preamble here, I must also say that I believe in essential and basic human rights for all humans. The executive order we're about to discuss does say that all persons should receive equal treatment under the law. This I agree with wholeheartedly. The government and the law should treat every single human being exactly the same insofar as they have a say. So preamble done. And with dignity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the next order of business is to get some definitions out of the way. We're going to begin to discuss transgendered people, which is simply defined as relating to a person whose sense of personal identity and gender does not correspond with their birth sex. Digging deeper, sex is referring to the biological differences between male and female, aka the chromosomes you have and how you are how you are assigned by and the uh, doctor at birth, and gender being the role of a male or female in society or a societal construct based on roles and how you are expected to act because of or based on your assigned sex. So I think those are all important sort of things to get out there before we even begin to discuss uh, this issue. So now we have, because of these executive orders, been placed in a position of discussing whether or not transgendered people, that is both adults and children, for example, should be able to use bathrooms, dormitories, sports teams, military barracks, on and on of the opposite sex from which they were assigned at birth. The EO itself cites a court case, Bostock versus Clayton County, in which a gay man was fired by the county for essentially participating in a gay softball league. 
This case went to the Supreme Court, who decided in a 6-3 opinion, with Alito, Thomas, and Kavanaugh dissenting, that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 covers transgender and homosexual persons, as well as is written, which is a prohibition of employers discriminating against any individual because of such individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. The issue is that previously it was thought that the language of the statute unambiguously prohibited the discriminatory practice, so there are numerous points to be discussed here. Gender identity disorder, gender identity conflict, gender dysphoria. These are all terms used by physicians, psychiatrists, and healthcare professionals to describe what is known as transgenderism as a medical condition that should be fit treatment. Secondly, as that is being litigated, let's talk about something a little bit more practical and easier to suss out. There will be males in the female restroom and vice versa, which is inappropriate and does not take the feelings of cisgendered and even homosexual males into consideration, in my opinion. There will be males on all female sports teams in all female sporting leagues, giving them an extremely unfair advantage. And while I have a great respect for anyone who wants to serve our country in the military, and I believe that they should, we all know this is an extremely regimented lifestyle. And to have males and females living in each other's barracks will bring with it a myriad of problems. Has anyone checked with the DOD on this? The troops. You want to create a separate barracks? Let's discuss it. You, want, you have a business, you want to build a third bathroom. Okay. You want to create a league with people who all understand and are okay with what may happen to the balance of competition. Let's talk. But to force this on every corner of the country creates issues that aren't being discussed in the same rooms that the decisions are being made in. Take the sports debate right now. Where's that line drawn? Is it in T-ball as a kid? Or do we blur the NBA and the WNBA or the Olympics? Martina Navratilova, who is a gay rights activist since coming out in 1981, the year I was born, believes this is cheating. She's quoted as saying, quote, it's insane and it's cheating. I'm happy to address a, a transgender woman in whatever form she prefers, but I would not be happy to compete against her. It would not be fair. She goes on to say, to put the argument at its most basic, a man can decide to be a female, take hormones if required by whichever sporting organization is, con is concerned. I'm sure she's referring to the Olympics there. When everything in sight, and perhaps earn a small fortune, and then reverse his decision and go back to making babies if he so desires. Currently, the International Olympic Committee does require testosterone to be below a certain level in order for transgender women to compete. And there's actually a bill that just passed the State House Judiciary Committee in Montana that bars biological boys from girls' sports. It's called the Save Women's Sports Act, which is a copy of the bill Idaho passed into law last year called the Fairness in Women's Sports Act. Now, I'm sure it won't be the last time we see something like this either. As I said, the issue is currently being litigated in Idaho and Connecticut with bills planned for Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, North Dakota, and New Hampshire. There are also states weighing bans on certain medical treatments for transgender minors. These uh, states include Alabama, Indiana, Missouri, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Texas. Now, I know uh, we have a couple more EOs to go through and we don't have a lot of time to do it. This is obviously, as we said, a big one that should command our attention for how it might affect society and mass. It's not a moderate decision made by the CEO, in my opinion, considering how generalized it maintains the issue. There's outstanding science to litigate. There are outstanding issues that stem from this decision that have not been discussed. The point being that while actual transgendered people make up a minuscule part of the population, decisions made in their name affect a much, much larger swath of the population, like a whole host of girls in any number of local sports leagues in Montana, as I've said. Multiply that by 49 other states. Yeah. That's why conversations like these that we're having now need to happen and not get swept under the rug. So with that being said, I can rest my case. Rob, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think you'll actually be surprised that it's not far off from, okay. from everything you said. 
The sports thing, I'm going to take a pass on it because it's so new. And I just haven't really had a chance to wrap my head around it. And I mm-hmm. even today spent a good hour trying to look up, you know, again, like you, I'm curious to hear the dissenting opinions and the people who are for this. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, for those who maybe didn't hear the controversy, the idea is that biological women or men who think they are the opposite sex via this uh, this executive order, I believe, can now play Correct. on sports teams of yes. the opposite sex. Now, obviously, as I said in my, uh, if you go back episodes ago, I did that left, uh, uh, liberal against leftism mm-hmm. shtick, and I talked about how I believe in d- the difference in the biological sexes. I believe that biological men and, and biological women serve different purposes. Yes. Uh, there is sort of a newfound feminist um, sort of third wave of feminism that has you know projected this notion that men and women are biologically identical, and I fully reject that yeah. as a, as a full-on leftist craziness right i just don't like it but with with that said i'm going to try to really pick my words uh carefully Mm -hmm. here homosexuality let's get off transgenderism for Mm -hmm. a minute homosexuality um has always been very controversial inside the conservative community now over the last couple decades they've gotten more adjusted to it you hear less about it i mean there was even gay people for trump you know throughout the last you know few election cycles Mm -hmm. right if you go back 30, 40 years, homosexuality was thought of by the conservative community, by and large, to be environmentally caused. In other words, you were not born with it. It was something that you chose. It was a lifestyle that you chose. That's why you had gay conversion therapy. It was this idea that this was a disease and you can be cured of it like anything else. Uh, you know, it's funny. And my mom, my mom likes when I talk about her on the show, so I'm going to bring her up. We have we all have these like sort of vivid memories of, of our childhood. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this sticks in my head, but I remember being like ten or eleven years old and uh, just hearing about what homosexuality is, sure. and going to my mother and being concerned that could that happen to me? Mm. Like, could I become gay? Mm-hmm. You know, even though there's nothing to be concerned about, but as a ten or eleven year old kid, I was concerned about it, yeah. and I remember her very sort of. Um, earnestly like sort of sitting me down and being like don't ever listen to people who tell you that this is is not something you're born with yeah this is something that you are born with we should treat these people with dignity there's nothing wrong with being homosexual a person who is homosexual cannot become something else i remember her just being very adamant about this is this is something that you're born with right and the truth of the matter is and you and i have both have a lot of gay friends and uh you know by virtue of the fact that we work in the you know an industry with a lot of gay people Mm -hmm. and you know if you grew up with a, a lot of people like there were kids who we knew were gay in kindergarten, first grade, who ended up being gay, you know? For And I don't want to stay, that's why I'm trying to choose my words nicely here. Like, you know, I'm not, not because they were not masculine, but just for certain reasons, it was sort of like, you know, when you think back, you're like, oh, I kind of knew that, you know, in first grade, you know what I mean? So what I, how this relates to the transgender conversation is that I believe this is the next 
phase of that process. And we have, I hear conservative people saying all the time, whether it's commentators or whether it's you or whether it's anyone I know and the, uh, you know, who's especially in the religious uh, conservative right, talk about how this is gender dysmorphia syndrome. It's a mental illness that can be cured. And frankly, my position is that I just don't know. I don't know that's if fair. that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, my hunch is that it's not because I've seen programming with kids that are three years old Mm -hmm. that are adamant you could i mean there's been a million datelines you know dateline on on nbc you know topics about this three-year-old kids that are telling their parents like i I, this is a mistake i am not a girl and you have to feel incredibly sorry for these kids i have two kids i mean it's just it's heartbreaking absolutely the empathy has to be there i think that first and foremost we've said that a lot on this episode Mm -hmm. but that being said there's inconclusive science here there is there's enough on both sides right now to say we don't know that's where the issue comes that we can't say either side you can't say that that's correct we can't say the other's correct. And and that's yeah. where we need to stop and listen to each other and wait and see what happens with the science. And hopefully there's some conclusivity to it. Right. And, and you know, and I've developed my my opinions on this have have evolved over the last even just a couple of years. Because, again, it's so new. So they're evolving mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah. And uh, I used to always say, you know, my rebuttal to sort of the, the I identify as a, as a when you hear people say like they identify as a different sex and they're biologically born to yeah. my rebuttal was always like well why can't I start collecting social security if I I'd say I identify as a 65 year old man you know uh-huh. but when I've used that example people have said that's not a good example because you're assuming that this is a mental illness and not something that not a biological mistake. And unfortunately, Jay, and I think you'll agree here, it does track in the religion. From what we know of of, of religious communities, mm-hmm. if you believe that God made a man and a woman, yeah. a woman, it totally tracks the idea that you would question the idea. Why would God make a mistake like that? Yeah. Okay. We, uh, we, 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 to, to put a button mm-hmm. on this, like. People are born with all sorts of birth defects. I mean, there was a kid I went to camp with who had six toes on each foot. It was a birth defect, mm-hmm. right? So that kind of logic never never works. Now, I'm not saying, I, again, it, this is such a sensitive subject. I don't want to say that the people who are transgender have a birth defect, right. okay? Mm-hmm. I'm saying that I'm not convinced at all that this isn't a mistake of nature mm-hmm. and that the and that therefore these people should be treated with dignity and respect and allowed all of the uh, have access to all of the rights that the rest of us do. Sure. And uh, once again, as I said in the very beginning of this, I'm not litigating that point. We should right. all have rights, the same rights as human beings that, that, right. that, that you know, we're all privy to in this country, period. Mm-hmm. The question here is, are, are there people that we are normalizing that have something we should be treating? Right. And that's the question. And again, I don't, there's no simple answer to this. You know, hopefully right. the science will bear it out. Go back 50 years, though, and we were say, ha- having that same exact conversation yeah. that you just said about homosexuality but in it's general. Still, the problem is it's still a little inconclusive as to what causes that. You know, is there a gene? Right. Is there yeah. not a gene? It's gone back and forth. And by the way, some people who we know they were gay in kindergarten, some people, right. it, it doesn't happen until they're, they're 50. And oh, so yeah. which yeah. one of those yeah. is is a gene and which one of those is a mental disorder is environmental environmental or mental issue we don't know Mm -hmm. and that is the scariest thing and so people Mm -hmm. who say i know for sure 
that this mm-hmm. is something that is from birth. You can't tell right. me that. And right. so that's that's where we, we need to have okay. conversations like this right. to sort of work these kinds of things out because decisions made by people who say this happens from birth, they do affect the entire population. And those same conversations, like I said, are not made in the same room as the people who are making the decisions. Yeah, uh, this is I mean, this is just this one topic alone. It's sure. a topic that yeah, yeah. can take up, uh, you know, a, a big stuff episode for 10 episodes. <laughs> right? It's 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 a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, yeah. if you're listening to this and you have strong opinions on it, know that this is not a deep dive. We're giving you our very just sort of yes. off the cuff. Mm hmm you know, explanations of what we think. We should talk a little bit about um, the health secretary pick, though, uh, because that is in line with this topic. So uh, what is her name? Uh, I I will say that I, you know, I always give people, again, this is the libertarian in me, and I've I've said this at the beginning of this podcast when we started doing this. Um, I have i don't lose sleep over how anyone wants to live their life i've actually i own a business and i had somebody on my staff who was transgender my whole uh, opinion on it was as long as they could get the work done i don't care you know that that to me that's a rejection of identity politics so um the health secretary what was her name rachel levine yeah okay so rachel levine is uh the health secretary pick she is a biological male who is now a woman there has been a lot made of uh, the the sort of controversy, the controversial part of of the pick being someone who is transgender and not a lot made about her work product, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, th- this is a person who was elected. She was she's from Pennsylvania, if I'm correct. Right. She, yes. She was elected over right. and over and, again. Right. Oh, by a Republican legislature. Yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So so, um, you know, I think it, for me, this doesn't bother me. It's in line with with can she do the job? Is she the right? Mm-hmm. Now, if she was picked just because she was transgender, sure, that's then identity I have a politics. problem with yeah, that. Yeah. That's identity politics. Yeah. Right. But if if. if she is is good for the job and she has the qualifications then by all means it doesn't bother me at all now i think there was people on the right who found irony in the fact that she was the health secretary sure. pick when people think that yeah. of all things yeah. you know this is a health issue yeah well that's the thing and and all i'll say on it is the following we've yet to see whether or not levine who obviously does not believe that transgenderism is a mental disorder will recommend practices to the HHS secretary or the president based on that determination. There's nothing right. else I can see in looking at Levine's record that I have a problem with other than normalizing a condition I don't believe should be normalized. And we'll have right. to see and leave it there. Yeah. Uh, moving on, there is there are several more. There's actually many more, but we're going to keep, we've already kept you here longer than we've kept you for any episode. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're mostly COVID. Yeah, mostly and great COVID mostly stuff. Great. All good stuff. Good executive orders. There's one more that I think uh, Justin wanted to detail. Let's hit that quickly and get the hell out of here. So, so Biden required an ethics, an ethics pledge. Um, and, and the only thing I want to point out there is that number eight on the ethics pledge, which by now, by EO, now has the force and effect of law, uh, reads, quote, I agree that any hiring or other employment decisions I make will be based on the candidate's qualifications, competence, and experience. It's too bad President Biden didn't take that oath before he picked his cabinet and, oh yeah, his vice president. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some irony in there for sure. You know what? One more thing we should mention, though, is the, the vaccine yeah. dosing. Yeah, so, so yes. talk about that for a minute. Mr. Klain, the main man, uh, announced that uh, the government has secured a vaccine supply 
for every adult to have their first dose that's by a, the great summer. News. Great news. Yeah. So that's really, really yeah. welcome news. It's it's exciting that they went ahead and did that, and so uh, you know everyone yeah, get their so arms we out. Can end this godforsaken. Except for except for the forty percent of yeah. you that won't take it. <laughs> All right, guys. Like I said, we've kept you here for a really long time, so we're not going to give you a long outro either. Yeah. But this this has been a fun episode. Nope. Man, I'm glad we... we uh, really I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'll level with you guys. We were going to have a topic of the day on top of this. And then we were like... Yeah, yeah we, we even invited uh, Editor-in-Chief Clay Cogman on. He's going to be on next week to talk about this topic of the day because yep. it is a good one. It is an interesting one. Um, so yeah, uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. We went, we went through a lot. Anything else you want to say, Justin? That's it. What and waste more time here? Goodbye, guys. <laughs> Have a good one. We'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Have a good week. Take as long as you need to uh, to listen to this one, and we will see you next week. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now. Yeah.